Welcome to episode number 123 of Talking Mopars. This was a special edition Swapcast episode that I did with my friends Birdo and Robert from DodgePod. DodgePod is a Dodge truck focused podcast. We had a great time and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Be sure to go subscribe and listen to DodgePod. Now, without further ado, if you are a Mopar enthusiast, then you are in the right place. Don't go anywhere. You're tuned into the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth, and I'm your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter, and this is Talking Mopars. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Before we get into the juicy meat of this episode, I have to ask you guys a question. Is your Mopar protected? Whether it's sitting outside in the elements or inside the safe confines of your man cave, it's important to keep your Mopar protected. That's why I'm excited to announce that I'm now affiliated with a company offering an amazing solution for vehicle protection. They have everything from basic indoor shields all the way to the top of the line platinum shields, offering the very best protection to keep your vehicle safe both indoors and outdoors from elements like dust, water, snow, and even UV rays. Their products are guaranteed to fit and are backed by a great warranty. To find out more about my new affiliate, please visit TalkingMopars.com, click on the Affiliates tab, and follow the link to their website. If you need protection for your Mopar, don't worry, we got you covered. What's up, guys? Welcome to the special edition Swapcast with me, Chris, from Talking Mopars. We've got Birdo and Robert from the Dodge Pod, and we're here to talk Mopars today, Mopar cars, Mopar trucks, and we're here to have a good time. So if you're joining us either on YouTube or on Facebook, feel free to leave us comments, ask questions. We might It might take us a while to get to them, but uh, it's going to be a fun show today. I don't know how long these guys plan on sticking around and talking Mopars, but I plan on being here until the very end. So welcome, guys. Um, since this is on my uh, my platforms, and I'm not sure how many people are aware that there's another Mopar podcast. Well, if you're not aware, now you are. The Dodge Pod is another Mopar podcast that you can enjoy all the time. So why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves, starting at the top with Robert. I'm honored. I get I get first dibs on this. Excellent. Yeah. My name's Robert Schwartzley. On uh, Instagram, you can find me at W350CrewCab. Uh my background is Mopar muscle cars, and I specialize in Dodge diesel pickups. Uh, I've been doing this for multiple decades and found my love of this uh, when I was much younger. I started wrenching on Mopars when I was two years old, and well, I guess that's my introduction. <laughs> awesome. How, how did you get involved with the Dodge Pod? Because one minute, one minute I see Birdo taking the reins, and then the next thing I know, there's this expert with first-gen diesel trucks on there, and I'm like, what's going on here? Well, Berto recruited me as okay. an interviewee uh, and said, hey, man, I want to interview you guys. You have that first-gen crew cab. I've been watching it for years. I, I'm that guy who had the uh, – I've got a 1980 crew cab, and it took me 13 years to do the restoration on. And I covered that uh, restoration on various web forum platforms because that's what you did back in the 2000s. Um, and he basically said, like, your truck's done. I want to interview you. And I said, all right, this, I have no clue what is involved with this. And we started talking and Bert, you correct me if I'm wrong. That, that podcast was like two and a half hours long. We just kept talking. We didn't run out of topics. <laughs> and uh, it was after that, he said, man, you need to be sitting on this side of the microphone. And well, the rest is history. 
I remember that episode. I was like, wow, this guy knows his stuff. Um, and uh, I, you know, it was funny because when you became a host, I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's great because anybody with the amount of knowledge that you have, not saying that Birdo doesn't have knowledge, but I, it seemed you have the, you have, <laughs> you have the like encyclopedia type brain. When I was listening to that podcast, I was like, okay, this is a little bit, I had to take it in, in increments because I was like, all right, too much information overload, information overload, but a great episode. Um, I forget what number episode it was, but it was, it was definitely a good one. Um, Birdo, you, a lot of people will probably know from your business, your shop, and especially your truck. You have a badass truck. Go ahead and tell the audience who you are, what truck you got, and all that fun stuff. Awesome, of course. Um, again, uh, honored to be on here with uh, with you guys. My name is Umberto Ortiz at Vulcan Specialties on IG only. And that's the name of my shop, Vulcan Specialties, out of Lubbock, Texas, which is West Texas, small kind of country town. And I've had my shop for about 18 years. I kind of got on the map when I decided to build that first gen, and that's kind of where it cycles. I'm a first gen nut, was <laughs> born and raised you know, around those trucks. My dad did construction, so those were the trucks that always made sure we didn't miss a day of work. And it, I mean, that's, that's kind of where it stems from. And just taking it from there, I'm a I'm an automotive enthusiast of all sorts. I love anything you know that that just turns and runs and has gears and you know you can tinker with. So that's just where I fall into place. Um, I like what you guys are saying. Asked and answered. How did Robert get there? Because he's a freaking encyclopedia. Anytime I had questions, I just Robert. You know, every time. <laughs> and it was easy. And uh, Robert, yeah, I think our conversation was probably more like three hours, but we only recorded maybe two hours and then edited that's that true. down. But yeah, true. we can talk forever for sure. Um, but I mean, that's that's a mean in a nutshell. Had uh, all kinds of plans, ended up turning wrenches, um, and I love it. I do the podcast. I've got my my specialty shop, and I do some freelance writing. So I don't I don't know why, but I just I keep <laughs> keep branching out to do more things to make my life uh, very complicated. So that's me. Awesome, man. Yeah, I uh, we were talking just before we went live, and you were talking about um, some people just are are great on the microphone. I actually think you're great on the microphone. I, I love listening to the episodes that you guys both have on Dodge Pod, um, and uh, I can't wait to see where your guys's podcast goes because. There's always room for more. And being the only Mopar podcast around for a while, it was really boring for me because I'm such a Mopar fan that I was waiting for other people to come up so that I could have something else to listen to myself because I hate hearing myself talk all the time. Um, <laughs> but uh, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Love the show. Um, I know that uh, this is also going to go on your guys' podcast. So I guess me in a nutshell – my name's Chris Albrecht. I'm the host of the podcast Talking Mopars. Um, I started the podcast in 2019 after having about four or five years under my belt running a page on Facebook called The Mopar Hunter, where basically I would just share cars that I found on Craigslist that I thought were interesting, whether they were overpriced, underpriced, good deals, whatever the case may be. I just love surfing the internet for cars for sale, especially Mopars. So I started sharing that. The page grew and I wanted to see if there was another Mopar podcast around. And other than Uncle Tony's Garage, I couldn't find anything. And Uncle Tony quit podcasting. So Talking Mopars was born. And then shortly after Talking Mopars, I saw the D100 talk pop up. And I was like, uh-oh, I got some competition. Who's running that? And then I found <laughs> out it was Ronnie from C10 Talk was behind everything. I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> we've got a big player now in the game. But I ended up uh, becoming buddies with Ronnie. He's a great guy. 
and uh, there was never any animosity and we always you know worked well together for what for the non-work that we did we just we uh we meshed well and we knew that eventually uh talking mopars and the dodge pod would come together and have a, have a great episode and that's what we're doing today so i know that ronnie kind of queued us up with a couple of questions so i'd like to get those out of the way um they're real they're good questions and i think they're going to be good um First Good of all, don't start. don't take Ronnie too serious. He does podcasts in his uh, in his garage while drinking beer with his Arizona friends. So if he's got questions, he can ask them himself. No, I'm just kidding. yeah. Where is Ronnie anyway? He should be in the chat or something. I think he's going to Mexico. I think that's what I heard. I heard he's going son somewhere. <laughs> um, one of the first questions that Ronnie wanted us to go over was uh, what we love about hosting podcasts. And I guess I'll, I'll take the reins and let you guys um, take a minute to kind of think of your answers. But doing the podcast has allowed me to connect with people from all over the world. And I, one of the best things about, I mean, any type of automotive, any part of the automotive community that you're in, everybody's got stories. And being a Mopar fan, I love hearing Mopar stories about people that have been in the game since they were, you know, knee high to a grasshopper. Or I, I've had a lot of people reach out to me saying that, you know, they got into Mopars when they were teenagers and they had a 2012 Dodge Charger and they started listening to the podcast and they ended up starting to look for classic Mopars. So I love hearing the stories. I love being able to influence people and to educate them um, with a little bit of knowledge that I know about classic Mopars. I love I love getting the chance to educate them um, about that era versus the new era and stuff. And, you know, connecting with very knowledgeable guys like yourselves and all the friends I've made. It just makes it makes podcast podcasting is the easy part getting everybody onto a show, you know, and scheduling it out for all the people that I want to talk to, because my list is a mile long. Um, that's the hard part. But uh, I, I love the fact that it gives me an opportunity to meet people and hear these awesome stories that everybody seems to have an awesome story. So that's kind of the foundation of my show and what I like to uh, talk to um, guests about, you know, their Mopar stories. So that that's what I like about being behind the mic, you know, so to speak. Why don't uh, Robert? You go ahead and take it off. From my end, you will. If, for anyone who's met me at various automotive events, and I do travel to automotive events all over all over North America. I've been from stuff from California to Florida to all over Canada. And for me, everywhere I have gone and always met. Normally, I try to do Mopar specific shows. I'm a very diehard Mopar fan. Uh, the Chevys and Fords. Everyone has their passion for me that those vehicles just don't do it for me. So wherever I go, I, I tend to talk a lot. And I'm one of those guys that's hard to miss because I'm normally the guy in the straw hat and Hawaiian shorts. And I've got a grin that's a mile wide. Everywhere I go, I talk to these people. I always love exactly as you said, it's the story behind this stuff. You know, when I read an article in Mopar Collector's Guide or Mopar Muscle or Mopar Action, any of these magazines, yeah, it's cool to read about the options the car had and what's on the fender tag and great that has, you know, a one-off option, et cetera. But after a while, all that stuff becomes the same. It just blends together. Yeah. What I love about it, though, is the story. It's the history of learning what that car's personality is about. You know, we've had cars in our family, some of them that go back many generations. And really, I think it's wide across every brand in the automotive hobby, a vehicle is just a bunch of parts bolted together. 
but it goes far beyond that. It's the story, it's the places the vehicles have been, the things that it's seen, the the experiences that that vehicle has had almost creates a energy to that vehicle. And that vehicle, just that story, I remember a couple of years ago, I was looking at a Superbird that the owner bought, I think it was 2017, and he drove it to Alaska from, if my memory serves, it was somewhere around that Tennessee area, drove it up wow. to Alaska and back. And he, he had all these photos and a photo album at a show. And I'm looking at this, I'm going, man, absolutely amazing what he was able to see. But what that car has seen in its 50 years, for all we know, that car could have done that trip three times with previous owners that aren't around. That's what I really get engaged with is hearing these stories. And when I get on a podcast, I get to ask these questions to direct people. You know, let's hear the stories about their in our case, Berto and I are talking more about the first-gen trucks. But after 30 years, these trucks have stories too, what they've been through, you know, the owners, the original owner. And I love that. Part two, I'm an automotive historian, specifically to Mopar. When I was seven years old, I got my first book uh, from Galen Govier. And for those of you who don't know the name, he's like essentially the god of decoding fender tags and VIN numbers. <laughs> and I used to literally, I was a seven-year-old kid reading through that stuff. So I'd be at a car show at 10 years old and I'd be looking at a VIN number and I was able to tell, you know, my dad and his friends exactly whether that was the original engine or not in that vehicle. Cause I could even read the casting numbers off the blocks. I was that kid. I was that weirdo that, you know, really didn't fit anywhere because I was so hell, hell bent on these cars that that was my world. So I became slowly learning a lot through time. And I, I found that as a podcast host, I get to really cater to the listeners. And one of the things I've been big on is trying to educate. You know, I know how hard it was for me to learn a lot of this info over the years. You read it on forums. These days it's Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. I was very fortunate due to the nature that I live four hours from Detroit. It makes it real easy for me to have been in the environment where I have all the factory engineers who either it was Dodge Cummins that as I grew up with these trucks, I was around these guys and I got to hear these stories firsthand. Same for a lot of the guys uh, that were involved in these trucks when they were being developed. Their former life, take a gentleman by the name of Troy Simonson, for example. He was the only guy at Chrysler Corporation to serve both on the Golden Commandos and the Ram Chargers factory race team. Because oh, in wow. those days, Plymouth and Dodge were separate entities and they yeah. didn't really share their technology. Well, he was the guy that rushed the Pistons down from Detroit after they qualified for the Daytona 564. Uh, they had actually melted the pistons that were in that, and they managed to still get the pole position and all, but he rushed new pistons down because they never would have made the race. Well, him and I met years ago, and he started telling me about this stuff. Well, after you know the whole muscle car era ended, he ended up getting involved with the little red express trucks. He was responsible for that project and the warlocks, and when that was all done because of his truck experience, Lee Iacocca went to him and said, you know, Troy, we, we need a diesel engine, and not that little you know, Mitsubishi <laughs> engine that we had in 78 that couldn't get out of its own way. We need a real yeah. diesel. So these are the guys that as you started talking to them and the engineers, you learned from my Mopar background, which is what got me into these trucks all the way to the new stuff. These were the same people. They carried the torch and the stories. And I got to learn that firsthand being, I got to know them over the last two decades. As I went to more and more shows over the years and I start talking to these people, a lot of people have questions because they've never learned the true story. They read stuff on the internet, but it's not necessarily the actual, this is what took place. And the more I learned, the more I was able to start telling stories. 
and the beauty of being a podcast host is now I'm able to start drawing some of these people in where I can educate those who are listening to the true stories, the way it actually happened, not yeah. by the way that word of mouth has taken it over the years. That's what I love about being a host because I get to share my knowledge as a Mopar historian with those who are listening or maybe who are new to the brand that don't know these stories. That's awesome. Birdo, that's a hell of an answer to follow, buddy. <laughs> um, ditto. Ditto. What he said. No, it's funny. We're, we're all cut from the same thread, man. I'm, I'm the same way. I love the stories. I call them, you know, the origins. I like to hear the story behind the truck, the story behind uh, the people. So what's nice about doing the podcast is I can call on anybody, message anybody that's willing. Most of them are. Uh, and just talk about it. So, I mean, we get the opportunity to do this. There's paychecks involved and perks, but I, I do it for free. You know what I mean? I do it at car shows. I do it at meet and greets, you know, at the coffee and cars kind of stuff. But this way, it's kind of, you know, centric to specific trucks, which I'm interested in. Now, I am a lot more greedy than you guys. I don't do it to share knowledge because I probably don't have the knowledge that you guys have. I do it to get the knowledge. So if I talk to someone like, like Robert, for example, uh, you know, um, we did Metal by Charlie, who's a young guy but very experienced. Uh, he does a lot of metal work. I message him the same way I used to message Robert um, to get information. So what's nice about contacting these people, connecting with these people, I have a straight line of communication um, if I have inquiries or if a customer of mine has an inquiry. And I, like I said, I'm, I'm probably a little more um, – a taker in, the, in this category, but it's the same thing with the freelance writing. Um, I contact uh, the owner of the vehicle. I'm, you know, with, with an editor, a photographer, a friend of mine, and I get a lot of information and I can get a foot in the door. I, I think we're all at the age where nothing's set in stone on what we're doing and we all want to advance. You know, Robert's uh, got a, you know, is in business with a family business and has um, started up his own gig on the side. And, you know, running parts. I'm, I've got similar stories that I'm wanting to do. I, I say origins. I've, I started up a couple of years ago, a brand called origins, and it's all about reaching out and getting the backstory. And I'm a big proponent of, I want it to live on to the next generation. So yeah. I'm able to enjoy it because, you know, it's still an early inception, but if we don't take care of it, it'll die. And it won't be there for our kids or our grandkids. I, I always make the joke that I want to sit on my porch and be able to see a hot rod go by. If I don't teach this to the next generation or tell my kids about it so they can tell their kids or this local kid at the car show uh, that likes my truck or whatever I have there, if I don't help educate him, just – and I say edu educate loosely. If I don't tell him about the cool part on that car that he thinks is so cool or let him sit in it or honk the horn or whatever it is – It'll die. I mean, I think all of us have an early story of our first cool car we saw, no matter what it was. It could have been just the most off platform, but you remember it because it's stuck in your head somehow, whether it was your dad, your granddad, some stranger at a local car dealer or museum or whatever. That's what I'm really interested in to pass on and foot in the door. I just, I just want to keep learning. I don't want to stay stagnant. I don't want to stay stale. I, I want to keep grabbing whatever I can from knowledgeable people. So it's a huge plus and it's been, it's 
been a blessing to be able to do this and talk to people about things I'm really passionate about. You know, a lot of people like cars are my passion. You know, I was born with a wrench in my hand. You know, that that is true, but I think it's something you feed too. And that's what I've been doing. And I want to continue that. Like I said, generational. I I do not live in a world where I can hear a throat of any something go down gray. Did I cut out? When I'm when You're I'm good. old and we still got you. Yeah, I gotta have a hot rod when I'm old, you know. So, um, I mean, that's it. I like doing it though. Awesome, man. Yeah, I I 100% agree with you. Um, most of the people, if not all of the people I've had on my show, there's there's stuff that they all know way more about than I do. I love picking people's brains, and yeah. you know that's kind of you know the master doesn't want to surround himself with students. It's the students that want to surround themselves with masters because then you get to learn, you get to grow. And um, I the one thing that I really love about Mopars is there's so much to learn. I'm learning something every day that I study. I, I know Robert is a uh, he's a uh, a tag guy. I have uh, let me see here if I can find it. <laughs> I have a. Uh, somewhere around here i have a stack of cards eh, it's not really cards they're just printed on regular pieces of paper but they're they're thick and it's um nothing but all the fender tag codes for mopars and uh every time i'm like i think i might know what that one is it's almost like a, a quiz that i do to myself like uh and uh half the time i'm right uh, half the time i'm wrong and what what really angers me robert has when that too I'm, <laughs> what really <laughs> angers me about myself is that yeah anytime i'm at a show or if i'm doing video and i know that i just said something that's wrong all i it, it messes me up for the rest of the time because i'm like i know i'm gonna get roasted for this and it's like uh do i acknowledge that i screwed up and then i try to acknowledge it but you know how the internet works like you mess up one time in the mopar world and you're burned so you gotta like try to recover dude it's hilarious but uh yeah i uh i do love learning too because like i said there's i mean as you guys know there's so much to learn when it comes to mopars and with robert like man i'm sure you're going to be uh one of those guys that i reach out to to you know confirm some of the things that i've heard as far as mopar history because there's a there's you know there's those stories where you hear like here's an example robert maybe you can help fill me in on this i've always thought that when it comes to the A bodies, the big block A bodies, 1967 comes around and the Barracuda had the factory 383, right? But Mr. Norm, who I'm a huge fan of, that everybody knows that I'm a huge Mr. Norm guy, um, claims to have been the one to basically uh, set off Chrysler with putting a big block in a dart when they said it couldn't be done. The argument is, well, no, how, why would they say it couldn't be done when they had already had planned to put it in a Formula S Barracuda in 1967, a 383? So what do you, what do you think the actual story is? Does Mr. Norm, is he able to take that credit? Uh, this is this is a very long debate, and I don't think <laughs> it's one we're ever going to solve here today with the likes of the three of us. But, I mean, he certainly claims that he was the start of that. And I think with Chrysler they always had a challenge with all their engineering stuff. They're the smallest of the big three. Whatever Chrysler has to do, they incur the same costs as Chev and the same costs as Ford. When you develop something, your cost for engineering and R&D is huge. I mean, when you develop a new minivan, for example, for Chrysler, their budget's a billion dollars. You know, whether you're the big company or the small company, that dollar value remains the same because you have to go through the same engineering hurdles. And I think a lot of the time with Chrysler, they may have known it was going to fit, 
And they obviously had the blueprints and all to prove that it does. But the question comes down to one, is there enough market demand to warrant them doing this? And sometimes I wonder if that's more the thing with, you know, what Mr. Norm did is he proved that, okay, if we build it, the people will come. Whereas Carzer may have gone, yeah, okay, we know it's going to fit, but really, you know, we've got a 340, we've got, you know, all these other applications. Is it going to be that much more worth our time to do this? Because reality is you go down this road and you have to make a couple of custom pieces to get around steering and, you know, stuff like that. Yes, there's an engineering cost, but two, now you have to warranty this. You have to have parts inventory. You have to do all your parts diagrams and parts books. Internet didn't exist then. All this extra supporting stuff has to happen for what? When you sell 100 pieces, you know, you do the math on that. A lot of times it didn't work out. You know, if you're Chev and you have a an audience that's 10 times larger, your small limited production that might only sell a couple is going to sell still 10 times more than Chrysler will. So I often come back to that with a lot of the stuff Chrysler has done over the years. I think it's a calculation of, do we actually have enough market to do it? And then you have someone yeah. like Norm come along and they see how many cars he's pumping out and he now has hard numbers that he can say, here, Dodge, here's what I'm doing. I think that's part of what took place there, in my personal opinion. Sure. I kind of liken it to the the whole Roadrunner fiasco in 68 when Dodge followed up mid-year with the Super V. After they saw what the Plymouth Roadrunner was doing with sales, they're like, oh, sh- I guess we better jump on that board too. So sure. then, you get, then you get the Super V, which is awesome. Um, but it's almost like Dodge's back then, um, a certain certain situations like with the big block A bodies and with the uh, budget budget muscle cars and the B bodies with the Roadrunner and the Super V. It seems like Dodge was always like one step behind Plymouth, which I always thought was a little bit weird. Yeah, I would agree. Um, Plymouth did a much better job of tackling that market. And I don't know if it was because they were a little bit more nimble, but they seem to always be ahead of the Dodge curve just a little bit. It might only have been for a couple of months, but they certainly were a little bit ahead in introducing a lot of this stuff. Absolutely. Um, Let's jump into another one of Ronnie's questions. Um, He asks us, what makes the Mopar slash Dodge community so cool and special? And my answer to that would be that uh, the community itself, I've never experienced a group of people so passionate and diehard than with Mopar. And don't get me wrong, the GM guys and the Ford guys, they have their own, you know, factions of super passionate people. But the Mopar community is on a different level, in my opinion. It's uh it's insane. And I, you know, when, when you talk to these guys, you can hear the passion in their voices when they talk about their cars or their projects. And I, I think that's really cool. I've ne- I've talked to Chevy guys, I've talked to Ford guys. I just don't hear the same amount of passion. Maybe I'm talking to the wrong guys. But when I talk to Mopar people, it seems like if they, if they are true Mopar people, there is no mistaking it. And it's, you know, the famous saying, Mopar, no car. What do you guys, what do you guys think about that? Berto, let's, let's let you take this one. Yeah, Berto, go ahead. <laughs> I think, uh, I think it's like friendship versus brotherhood. You know what I mean? A lot of the C10 guys, I'm a C10 guy. I'm a Chevy guy. I was raised that way. My dad is, uh, is long time, was long time Mopar. Um, and again, that's, that's where I get it from. But, there seems to be like a brotherhood with the Mopar guys. We want to help each other, not bring each other down. We're all about because you know the Mopars are are the heart of the of the big three as far as supply, demand, parts that are available. It's a more costly 
brand yeah. just bar none just because so i think because of that a lot of us feel sorry for each other i don't know where it comes from but it's we want to help we want to help our brother out you know what i mean i've got parts in the back do you need them i've i've got a guy right now maybe a potential customer because of the podcast going to you know another benefit of it that is reaching out to me wanting to do you know um a suspension build a chassis build he He's asking questions. I'm giving him answers. He's he's saying, man, if I could just bring this out to you in Texas, I would. I said, okay. I mean, just let me know. We can talk more. And he's taking trim off of a truck because he's got a different, uh, you know, look for his truck. And he's cleaning it all up. He's taking trim that you just don't find anywhere off. He's got dually fenders, um, small fender flares. And he's asking me, you know, do you want them? And I'm thinking, yeah, what's your price on them? I'll, I'll take anything I can get. He's like, oh, man, I'll just ship them out to you. And I'm thinking – Okay. <laughs> I owe you something, but I'm just going to go ahead and say, okay, now, but that's, that's the community. I mean, who does that? I mean, I know that I know it's everywhere, but I really feel it's more of a brotherhood where guys want to help each other out to keep our cars and trucks strong and on the road and a big presence. And maybe it's not um, like power in numbers. Maybe it's quality over quantity. That's, that's where I'll leave it. Robert, you take off. Uh, I've got a couple of theories on this because this has been something that I've harped on for many years. When I've gone to a lot of generic shows, maybe it's a good guys or something like that. My experience has been that you get the Chev guys and let's face it, in the Chevy world, you have GM, Chevrolet, Oldsmobile, Buick, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My experience has always been that when you talk to someone and you call him a Chevy guy, they'll actually correct you. Oh, uh, no, I, I'm a Buick guy. Oh, okay, <laughs> sure, you're, you're Buick guy, fine. You're I, so right. <laughs> I've even had people correct me when I call him a Chevy guy. They'll say, yes, I'm a Chevrolet guy. My apologies. <laughs> you know, I'm from Mopar World. I didn't know that we, we can't call a Chevy Chevrolet. Or fine, my apologies. But I think what happens in the Mopar camp, and it's one word, it's the underdog. We've always been the smallest of the big three. We're always the one that had to kind of fight the hardest to even get a spot at shows because you have your Chev crowd over here, you have your Ford crowd over here, and they're they're big tents and they they've got a whole bunch of stuff. Then you got us Mopar guys. You roll into a show of 500 cars, you might have what 15 Mopar guys there, and because of that, it doesn't matter whether you're Dodge, whether you're you know Plymouth, whether you're Chrysler, AMC. We're just, we're a tight knit group where we just, we all just got along and we're all there to help each other because our common goal is to be faster than those other two camps. It doesn't matter what side of the brand we're from. We're just, we're the underdogs. We're, we all just kind of band together. And I, I say this tongue in cheek, but I truly believe it. I have met thousands upon truly probably hundreds of thousands of people over the years at shows. And I will say, I have always found it to be a different type of person who's a Mopar guy or girl, I should say, Mopar person. You know, it, it's a different mentality. It's a it's a very different atmosphere of people. And I don't know what brings a different person, whether it is that underdog, the wanting to band together. I don't know, but it is a different group of people when it's all diehard Mopar group uh, versus some of the other brands that I've experienced over the years. And I've been involved with a lot of car clubs, let me tell you. But that is that is what I have found with the Mopar group. 
Yeah, I, I agree with what both of you guys said and to what Berto said. It's funny because when I first got into Mopars and I got my first Mopar project car, it was, it was 69 Dodge Dart. Every time I went to go buy parts for that, I was I would always end up at an older gentleman's house with a shop and a bunch of parts. And, you know, it was almost like he was surprised when I got out of my truck and he's like, oh, it's a younger guy. And, uh, you know, expressing my love for Mopars. I go there for one thing and I end up with a truckload of stuff. Most of it I didn't pay for because he's just so excited. Wow. Yes, take it. I love that yeah. young guys are getting into this and that are, they're keeping it alive, which I mean, I, I've walked away with some serious parts hordes just because they thought it was great that the younger generation is still living and breathing Mopar. So um, to those of you guys out there listening that you know, have a bunch of parts you're selling and you get a young kid coming to buy something off, you maybe toss him a couple bones. You know what I mean? <laughs> it just helps keep the hobby alive. Um, I hear a lot, you know, and we see, you know, some of these project cars going for crazy prices. And the reality is, is the reality. <laughs> you know, if you, you got to pay to play in the Mopar game, but um, it doesn't it doesn't hurt to throw somebody a bone every once in a while, especially uh, somebody young. That's that's my opinion. Um but uh, I see all you guys in the chat. We're going to get to your questions here later on. I uh, appreciate you guys coming on and joining us. Um, if you haven't, be sure to subscribe to Dodge Pod. Uh, great podcast. And uh, those are the gentlemen that I have with me today. Um, the last question that Ronnie wanted us to talk about are what are the challenges for the future of classic Mopars? And I'm going to go ahead and let Berto take this one off again. And I will uh, I'll, I'll follow up at the end. Robert, you go after Berto, okay? Absolutely. All right. So uh, challenges, I, I think it's what we've always seen. And we just talked about, you know, the, the smaller of the big three, but I think we're closing that gap quite a bit. Again, a supply and demand of what's out there, but with Chrysler doing their job and just banging out stuff like, you know, the SRT platform years ago, the Hellcat platform, um, you know, doing things like the, um, um, uh, I mean the, the the Ram trucks now even I mean that that's somewhat of a stretch but still they're I mean they're getting into the game and going aftermarket and I think that's what they're going to have to do uh, to keep up you know if if you guys are auction guys and you watch the uh, the Barrett jo- uh, Barrett Jackson a month ago and then the uh, Meekum before that these prices are are crazy and they're they're getting up there and up there but I, I've been watching auctions for years uh, my father in law is, is a big you know wholesaler and has always done that and years years ago you would see an original car be it a that beat a t-bird like the thing behind me be a, a, a you know 55 6 or 7 shoebox chevrolet bringing huge numbers fully restored you know back to uh back to factory the shift has happened years ago and it's rest of mods taking taking all the money however what you said earlier is right chris you, you got to pay to play a rest of mod is not cheap now we all know original <laughs> parts aren't aren't cheap either but a resto mod the the sky's the limit you can spend whatever you want on any portion of that car you want so they're just going higher and higher and for me i think if chrysler and associates want to keep up and close that gap more they're gonna have to play the aftermarket card and get the enthusiasts into it the old timers um like you know our parents that were raised in the in the mopar muscle car uh craze to our generation here that are slowly becoming the old timers and the new generation uh, to close that gap and, you know, performance and uh, factory performance and, you know, uh, factory hot rods. That was huge. That's being, you know, revisited. And I think that's what has to be pushed to uh, make the brand 
survive. And I think that's what is big in, in, in upcoming. I know we have pushed for EVs and all that, and I've, I've got two different uh, opinions on that, but <laughs> me you too. Have to, yeah, <laughs> you, I think you have to, um, I think you have to keep it alive and the aftermarket, of course, that's, that's where I live. That's, that's my job. But I think that's um, where the market grows and pushes Chrysler. From my end, I think regardless of what brand you're in, we're all going to be fighting the same common thing. You know, we all looked at, you know, 1971 as kind of the tail end of the muscle car era because OPEC and all that came in, you know, horsepower numbers, regardless of brand, were down right across the board. And in came the 70s where we still had some of the big engines, but none of them had the horsepower numbers. None of them had the performance. And I honestly believe that we're living that all over again right now where we currently stand here in 2022. We're living the tail end of this again. You know, you look at all the EPA mandates that are coming for the new vehicles. Um, the the reality is the the feds in general don't really want to see oil burning vehicles on the road anymore. The push is for electric vehicles and they're going to find every way to eventually make that happen. Regardless of our brand, all of our cars are going to be a target for them because they feel that these old gas guzzling vehicles are going to be, you know, the, the death of this earth when the reality is most of us don't drive enough miles in a year for these cars to really be a threat to anything. But I think right across the board, that is going to be our biggest challenge is will the fuel still be there? And if there is fuel, I mean, doesn't matter where you are in North America right now, you look at the fuel prices, this is higher than we've seen in a very, very long time. Yeah. Now if you want to drive that, you know, Challenger 440 Hemi, et cetera, out to a show that's 500 miles away, that $200 fuel bill is suddenly $350 round trip. And you start really having a lot of guys, and I've seen this over the last 15 years, you know, you go to Carlisle, Mopar Nats, even Woodward Dream Cruise, stuff like that. You have more people who are now bringing their modern day challengers and chargers to the show that might be leaving their classics at home because, hey, instead of driving it and instead of towing it, they're just gonna drive their new, vehicle out because they have AC, they have reliability, they most cases have more performance than some of this new stuff, be it the Hellcats, the Demons, Red Eyes, etc., than some of this older stuff. It just it's a lot more simple and easy way to hit a car show is throw all the stuff in your trunk of your brand new charger and off you go with four of your best buddies and you know you drive home and you don't have a an old car to unload or any of that stuff from a trailer. I think that's our biggest enemy of what's coming is will we lose some of that stuff at these shows and not have these old cars out there because either a they become too costly to drive a lot of these cars are too costly to risk driving on the road if there was some guy who's not paying attention some kid on their cell phone and you know they smack into the side and damage a original car or something like that (laughs) you know you get nervous to take out some of your cars nowadays because of that fear of will that other guy i'm not worried about me because i'm paying attention when i'm driving especially vehicles but that other guy in the other lane who just crossed the center line who's not paying attention doesn't necessarily share that same view and love of your old Mopar that you have. So I think that's our biggest challenge is a combination of fuel going away or getting more expensive. And for a lot of the classic Mopar world is that's what the the question was really targeted from you, Chris, is the generation of baby boomers who have owned these cars for the last 30, 40, 50 years, that, that demographic is changing. 
you know, we've got, you know, my father's generation where the cars that they bought brand new, they're getting now into their 70s, 80s. Some of them no longer have driver's licenses anymore. They may still have that car that they've owned since new, but they don't really want to sell it yet because it would literally kill them. That is slowly going to change the face of this as well. I've already seen that in the last probably 10 years that a lot of the, the people that I've known since I was a kid, and I've seen them every year at these shows, oh, so-and-so passed away. They're not here this year. They didn't make it to the next Mopar Nationals where in the past you would have seen them every year there with their drag car or whatever the case. I think that's going to be a big change to this market because not only are you losing the people that bring the cars, you're losing the knowledge. And that's going to be a whole different thing on its own for maintaining these cars and what that car actually is and what makes it special. Yeah, anyone can go out and buy a car if you have the money to buy whatever that model is and engine combination, but it doesn't mean they appreciate the originality, the NOS parts that are on it. Uh, and even what that combination is, if it's, you know, a one of five, you know, Cornet RT convertible type situation where you've, you've got stuff that might not be as special and those cars may not be preserved the same with their new owners. Yeah, I agree 100% with both of you guys. It, to be honest with you, the landscape of where everything's going really scares the hell out of me, um, especially with this push for EV. The only saving grace, in my opinion, is I just don't th – I mean, as much as they want every car to be electric on the road, the infrastructure just can't – it can't handle it right now. Um, yeah. It's going to be years and years and years before that happens. What scares me about Ma Mopar – you know, under the – this may kill my chances of ever working with them corporately, <laughs> but uh, – they're really they're really pushing this electric thing and I'm, and what I'm seeing is a huge huge opportunity with this brotherhood of muscle and stuff um, as far as like the the younger generation getting into the hellcats and the scat packs and stuff they're keeping it alive they're keeping the love for that alive like I said I've had kids that are into the modern stuff reach out to me and say hey listening to your podcast got me into the old stuff now I'm looking for an old project car I love hearing that kind of stuff but if they start pushing all that stuff away, killing the Hemi off, killing the, you know, the Challenger and the Charger. You know, I hear all these crazy rumors and I really hope that they're not true. I hope they don't kill the gasoline engines because um, I it's, nothing will ever replace the coolness of an internal combustion engine, in my opinion. Um, but I, I get so scared when I hear them really pushing, oh, yeah, in five years time, we're going to be all electric. And I'm like, man, you are really just it, it's almost like the, like you can't backstab the the customer base and the enthusiasts that you're building on right now you know yeah. they're coming out they're bringing back direct connection it's like awesome and then you hear things i hear from all sorts of people oh that's like a play on the electric thing they're gonna they're gonna weasel the electric in with bringing back direct connection i just don't see that being well the they case did 100 they did it with lightning uh, with the Ford Lightning, though, too, you know yeah, what I mean. So, yeah. so it is scary. So, so maybe to ease you there, because I, I talk myself down maybe every night from this same <laughs> from this same <laughs> subject. I'm a believer in uh, history repeats itself. So mm -hmm. this is you brought it up early. This is what happened, um, you know, in the '70s, you know, with with that fuel crisis, and then EPA stepped in, and all the cars just went to shit. You know, 180 horsepower Corvette, woo, you know, <laughs> just four door, just four door cars everywhere. But look at the shift change, you know, a decade ago or more with, you know, the Camaro, the Mustang, you know, the the SRT. And exactly to credit what you said, it has it has raised another generation on its own. So I, I'd like to say history is going to repeat itself. And even though we're going to go, maybe I see a small downturn, the EV going up, they may eliminate some of the performance stuff. Um, 
but it's not going to be a lasting deal. I think you you cannot kill, like you said, it's EV is not going to support the world, and you cannot kill, uh, you know, the gasoline engines. And uh, we've just raised a generation on it that they're going to raise their kids the same way my dad raised myself, and I'm raising my kids. And I think that's that's just going to be history repeating itself. And hopefully, we can just make it stronger. And back to what I said, just teach, you know, teach the young ones, um, and be generational with it and pass it on. And I'm going to agree with you, Berto. There's, you know, I've, again, I'm a automotive historian. I'm not just interested in the current stuff. I do a lot of stuff with the Dodge Brothers vehicles back in 1914 through, you know, 1920s. And let's take a step even further back. Electric vehicles were actually already available in the late 1800s. This was a technology that actually existed. That was the first round. And they determined combustion engines to be cheaper, more efficient, et cetera, when they looked at the total footprint and they went away. They eventually came back and they went away again. And now here we are looking at this again. The reality is the government's trying to push whatever their EPA agenda is, which is fine, but you have to look at the facts of it. If everyone drove home from work at six o'clock on a hot summer's day, when your AC is running at home, you flick on your oven to start cooking dinner and you plug in your high voltage electric vehicle, the power grid can't handle it. Further to that, this is not all green energy. It's not all coming from windmills and magical pixie fairies pooping in the energy grid, magically giving power to all of this. It has to be created somewhere. And the reality is many areas of the country, especially in the Appalachians, you're running off of coal. Yeah, okay, some of the prairies and all run off of some solar and some wind power. We don't have enough grid. It's still basically either you know coal, wind, solar, and nuclear. That is what powers all this. We do not have enough power grid to even bring that power to every home across America, Canada, the globe. We're not there yet. I read an interesting article um, recently, and I can't remember who wrote it. It was either Harvard or one of these guys, and they claim that the peak gasoline vehicle production will not be until 2045. Wow. And that wow. number hit me, and it was describing the fact that, well, everyone says, okay, you know, as of this year, which is supposed to be two years from now, everything's going to start going downhill. The reality is that infrastructure is not there yet. You can't have everyone go home and plug in, otherwise the entire power grid would collapse. You know, you even have hydro areas, especially in the southwest, where, you know, Hoover Dam and all, anyone who's been out to Lake Mead, you can see the water levels. You know, it's not what it was 15 years ago. So there's a lot of areas that are not creating the power that it should. What happens if you don't have a windy day? Oh, your windmills aren't turning. And yeah. you're going to have everyone come home and plug their vehicles in? We're not there yet. The infrastructure is not there. And this isn't something that will change in a matter of two, three years. We are in this, as Berto said, for quite a while. And I think fuel will always be there in one form or another. The question is, what are you going to pay per gallon? <laughs> hey, don't well, bring up windmills. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't bring up windmills to a Texan in February, man. You're scaring me now. <laughs> Not after last year. <laughs> you guys definitely eased my anxiety a little bit. My my thing is like when they started talking about the push for electric stuff, I was like, do whatever you guys want. Just don't kill the crate engine. If they killed yeah. the the Hemi crate engines, that would be a disaster in my opinion. Thankfully, there's you know millions of cars on the road that will eventually be in the scrapyard, and you'll be able to pick them for their Hemis, like like our friend from DIY Hemi, Blake and uh, Blake and his buddy Mike over there. They're uh, still Hemi swap in the world, and I'm a huge huge proponent of you know I, I always say that you know 
as far as the originality with cars, I love to see a numbers matching all original Mopar. But you get a show where there's nothing but all original numbers matching Mopars. And basically, I could go open a, a brochure from 1969 and see all that stuff. I love creativity. That's one reason why I'm one of those guys who I, I love the originals. I love the resto mods. I love it all. And I, I think that if they just kept the production of the Hemi crate engines and stuff going, I think that would at least be, you know, throw us a bone. You know what I mean? Like, okay, and guys. To eat you, Chris, I think they will because the difference is the EPA mandates what every vehicle manufacturer does to their corporate average fuel economy. That is what it's all based off of. Yeah. Hellcats, demons, that type of stuff in small production runs do not make a big enough dent in the corporate average fuel economy, known as CAF, to really make a difference. So there will always be that type of stuff. Anything sold through Mopar Parts, for example, is, and we've all seen that line that we all laugh at, not for on-road vehicle use, yeah, yeah. Uh, everything designed for off-road. They can sell it for that because it's supposed to be used at racetracks and that type of stuff. That doesn't affect the CAF standard. And quite honestly, it, it doesn't affect them the same way from the government looking down on them. So yeah, you might lose say a 5.7 Hemi, 6.1 Hemi, 6.4 Hemi, that type of stuff that was readily available in daily drivers. But a lot of that stuff will still be there, especially in the smaller number runs, because they know that that stuff sells. I mean, who would have thought at Chrysler that the Hellcat would have taken off to the extent it did? They all knew it was going to sell, but I don't think anyone dreamed of the numbers of what they ended up being sold for today. Who would have thought everyone and their brother in the neighborhood would have a 700 horsepower four-door floating around? <laughs> I always joke and say that uh, if you got a 400 credit score, go get yourself a Hellcat. <laughs> you can get in one with a 400 credit score. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm with you 100. percent It's it's funny because they're pushing for this, you know, electric vehicle stuff, and yet the Challenger for the first time in history has outsold the Camaro and the Mustang, from what I understand. Which I was super excited about. I'm like, man, I'm, I, it's got to be interesting in those board meetings because you know a lot of those guys are diehard Mopar people. And they have oh, yeah. to deal with those corporate, you know, bean yep. counters. It's got to be a nightmare, especially with the the heritage that Mopar has. Um, I can't imagine. I would love to see everybody in Stellantis get together all in a lineup and go, okay, who's a real Mopar enthusiast here? I want to see how many hands raise. And I think it would be quite a bit. Um, but then, you know, you get those corporate bean counters in there going, hey, we got to appease, you know. It's global warming. We got to appease everybody, you know, with this electric <laughs> stuff. It's like, man, it's a... Uh, I'm glad I'm not at that board table because I would be one of the ones going, hey, what are you guys doing? We can't. <laughs> we need more power, more power. I think we can believe the memes that you see out there. You know, the memes with uh, Ford and Chevy going all EV and then you got the Mopar guys doing dumb shit. I, I think that's probably accurate. And that meme has existed, Chris. A lot of the people who were your true diehards ended up with a small underground group originally known as PVO, which was Performance Vehicle Operations, which eventually turned into SRT. Mm -hmm. uh, I, again, being close to Detroit, I've been very fortunate to call, call a lot of friends at SRT friends now that I met through the years of doing stuff with them. And these are your true diehards. These are the guys who are you know, on the tracks on the weekend, drag racing or autocrossing their vehicles, their personal vehicles, not corporate vehicles. And that's how they ended up in this stuff. A great example is someone that many people know by the name of Ralph Shields. I mean, there's a guy who's a true diehard that believes in these cars. He's the guy that managed to get the Viper to come back after it was discontinued in 2010. There was another opportunity. He's the guy that in his younger years couldn't afford a track car. So he took his minivan, pulled all the seats out and slammed the thing and went autocrossing. There's photos online. Look it up. 
And you can see him autocrossing his minivan. I mean, these are the true diehards. And thankfully, we still have a bunch of those guys in the corporate end who are bringing these types of vehicles. And these are the guys that come up with, hey, on our Demon, let's reroute some of the intake air through the air conditioning chiller so we have colder air getting into the plenum. I mean, these are true car guys that come up with that type of stuff. And I'm, I'm so grateful that Chrysler has a bunch of them still because they've created so much unique vehicles for us Mopar guys. Absolutely. To what Berto said earlier, you know, history repeats itself. And it's funny that you talk about PVO turning into SRT and those guys doing, you know, having that influence on the products that they come out with as far as performance, because back in the day, it was the Ram chargers and those guys drag racing on the weekends, you know, coming up with all that cool stuff. Um, so it's interesting how history does repeat itself and you will always have those hardcore guys, thankfully, that work at the company that can still hopefully keep things alive and i think i think they will i think it's a lot of uh i think a lot of people are scared i mean myself included um a lot of people are a little bit scared and i don't think there's too much to be scared about just yet um but uh i i do see a lot of people in the chat i did see uh walter joy asked a question that i thought was interesting maybe we can touch on it he said uh what's the opinion on kevin hart's new roadrunner build which started out as a survivor class roadrunner with original paint and all um that that goes back to what i just said about <laughs> i love seeing original stuff but i also see love seeing resto mods but it kind of hurts my heart a little bit that an amazing you know there's so many project cars out there that are you know no engine no transmission you know need to be rebuilt it's like gosh why why can't you just build one of those instead of taking an original but there are still so many originals left that maybe losing one doesn't necessarily hurt what do you guys think go ahead berto you don't ask me cut them all up i don't care that's <laughs> <laughs> i come i come from a different uh train of thought on that stuff that's that's yeah. where the um uh that, that's where some of the uh you know, mopar fans probably won't like me I'm, I'm not the purest in that in that way at all um i do love again you know going back to what i did say earlier you know you, you do have to have some of them you know survive to pass that on but that's something that you're not going to stop and I, i'm hell i have a custom shop had it for 18 years and by custom i mean i've cut a lot of nice cars up and i don't feel <laughs> bad about any of it so <laughs> kevin Hart. um so i've got a, a a buddy um that shot his car um just a couple of weeks ago when it when it came out um a not stock uh, photographer john jackson and he was oh, sending cool. me some pictures and you, you guys are gonna hate me right now because i've seen these like spy photos from like weeks ago and john sent them to me he's just like oh yeah and don't tell anybody that it doesn't come out for two <laughs> weeks i'm like you can't do that to me i have people that want to see this kind of stuff so as a joke to um to, to john to not at not stock i i told him hey um tell kevin hart if he wants to come to my uh, my birthday bash in july <laughs> so i keep messaging him uh, hey, tell Kevin Hart because he actually knows he shot he shot all his cars. So. Cool. <laughs> but back to the point. Now nah, cut him up. I'm good. From my end, I I come from the Mopar background. I was raised on 100% NOS restorations, right down to you know, hey, you got an original set of polyglass tires for your Hemi Cuda, and <laughs> there's one side of me that you know I grew up with my dad, and we've between the two of us, we have a couple of those types of vehicles that are all original and there's something to be said for that. And I can fully appreciate and respect it. On the other side of the coin, for any of you who have seen my trucks, I can't leave those things alone. I'm in the process of the weekend of putting an NV 5600 six speed swapping into a 55,000 mile original unrestored D350. 
because <laughs> I can't stand those automatics. And you, do you feel bad about cutting them up? Yes, you do, but it's not like they're they're permanently cut up. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that every vehicle should be cut up and you shouldn't respect the history, but there is two sides to this. When you look in the sake of you're you're going to take a shop that's going to build Kevin Hart's ride. In this case, they're going to look at and go, what is the best place to start? Yeah, you can go and find a 69 Roadrunner, satellite, whatever you want it to be. And reality is, let's be honest here and call a spade a spade. Where are you going to find a clean shell that isn't going to require a lot of major rust repair in today's day and age, 50, 60 years after these cars were made? You don't. So if you stop and look at it and say, okay, you're going to buy an overpriced shell, and that's a reality. If, as you said, there's no driveline in it, and it's going to have some perforation through the body panels because it lived in Maine or New York or wherever (laughs) its entire life, and you're going to buy that still overcharged shell for six, seven grand. Now you have to go to Automotive Direct or any of these other guys and buy thousands of dollars worth of sheet metal, spend the time to put it in, and you look at your dollar bill to get to the point of what a clean body would have been. You look at it from a dollars and cents perspective. And in the case of Absolutely. Kevin Hart, I'm sure they didn't want to spend months doing body work. So they're going to go, okay, I can buy a clean survivor for 25 grand. The paint is faded. It's not hundred percent original anymore um, because it really needs a paint job. And if someone restores it, then it's no longer original anyways, uh, based on Mel Mayer's original survivor standards of X amount of original <laughs> paint. If yeah. I were I mean, I played that world. I, I know Mellon is, is I've been involved with doing shows with him before too, because I've got vehicles that have been in his tent. So I, I understand and respect it. The challenge really comes down to exactly that though. They're going to look at it and go, what can we spend the least amount of money on for the cleanest body so we can get our resto mod going and it gives us a solid foundation. The black paint on that car, you cannot afford to have shitty body work. That's the reality of it. So the cleaner you can start with, when you have a client like Kevin who's going to come in and, let's face it, this car is not a $100,000 restoration. It ain't going to be a $200,000 restoration. You're into some of these high-end pro touring vehicles where you're dropping a lot of money. You want to do this quickly, cleanly, and the reality is as a shop, as Berto knows, you're not doing this like your average hobbyist like you and I, Chris. When we're working on our trucks, we can spend five hours doing some little tiny little <laughs> shit and it doesn't matter to us. The reality is Berto has to charge X amount of dollars an hour because he's a shop. He's got overhead. He's got employees. He's got taxes, la, 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 la. You now look at that and go, would you spend, say he's charging $100 an hour. So it's $500 to do that small little detail. You don't want to spend that time. You're trying to do it quickly, cleanly, so your customer's happy, and you still have profit margin left over at the end because nine times out of 10, these are not unlimited dollar. You have to give a quote at the start of this. That's the way businesses work regardless of what business you're in. Yeah, okay, Kevin, we're going to do your car for $300,000, and it's going to take us six months. All right, now let's get on. Let's find the cleanest car, and I think that's (laughs) why something like that would be done. Do I feel bad? On one side, yes. Yet on the other side, there's a vehicle that's had a new lease on life, that will be very much loved and cared for. And that car does live on just in a different form. Absolutely. I agree with both of you. Um, I do want to ask. So in the Mopar world, like as far as cars go, muscle cars, I see, I see this. And I know that you guys deal with this stuff too. I'm just trying to create some conversation here, but like in the Mopar world, if you get a, we'll just say a nice road runner or something and it, it looks factory original and you throw, let's just say some 17 inch Mopar rallies on it or some Chrome wheels. 
everybody in there it's like split right down the middle like oh you ruined it it's a set of wheels for christ's sakes i'm wondering like birdo with a guy like you i love your truck i think it's amazing how often are you at these car shows or truck shows and you get purists going you ruined it <laughs> i if i went to a different kind of car truck show i i think yeah. i'd get a lot of that a, a lot sure. of the place that i go with my truck is um after you know custom automotive enthusiasts they yeah, yeah, they yeah. don't mind a, a quote-unquote cut-up truck um <laughs> But to answer that a little bit closer, I I get tons of hate because my truck is worthless because I lowered it because it has big (laughs) wheels because of whatever else. So I love custom automotive. I think the interpretation of a build is awesome because even myself, I could build my truck again and it it would not be the same truck. So Mm -hmm. if, you know, if Robert, you, Chris, or myself built the same vehicle, it would be a complete different vehicle by three different minds. And I think that's, what's great about the automotive world and the aftermarket world um, when it comes to custom automotive. So yeah, my truck, it, it gets a lot of flack because I put Chevy parts on it, but I, I also like the design aspect of my truck has to be a, a certain height off the ground and has to tuck a certain wheel. Uh, it, you can't please everybody. The easiest thing is not to worry about anybody's opinion because they didn't pay for it. So Exactly. I got Dodge guys saying, "Why'd you use, uh, you know, Chevy Dually fenders?" And then I've got <laughs> Chevy guys saying the same thing. <laughs> so it's, you know, at the end of the day, I was looking for a certain like profile, a certain look to my truck. In my head, I got a rendering done before I ever started, you know, turning a wrench on it. And in my head, it I nailed the stance and the overall look of it. And I did that by not slamming it completely on the ground. Uh, I couldn't use the original Dodge Dually uh, flares on it. I changed up a few things, but stylistically, I love the way it looks. I've gotten a lot of compliments. More, more good than bad, is good. is what I've gotten. But yeah, the the purists, they're not gonna. There's a lot of old timers. I don't know if they're purists or not, but I've gotten at, at the car shows. I've gotten a lot of old timers that will walk through a sea of of trucks, mostly Chevy, um, and then just stop dead in their tracks and go, wait, hold on, and then they back up. They see the grill, and then they see the body lines, and they look at it more, and. <laughs> And they love the truck for the fact that, you know, the work that was put into it. The same way I go to a car show, I I may see a vehicle that I have no interest in, but I can see the amount of work they put into it. And I appreciate that. And then I go pick, you know, the brain of of the builder, designer, whatnot. So it's, it's, it's back and forth. I think overall, um, I get a lot of positivity out of it though. How about you, Robert? From my end, I think it comes back to what the vehicle is and what the story behind that vehicle is, you know, if I take the first gen world, for example, I love factory steel wheels on a first gen Ram. Uh, those factory steel wheels with the dog dish hubcaps and all, I love that look. But in the same breath, I took them off my own truck because there's really only two brands of tires that are made in that original 235, 85, 16 size. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you start getting into some of that stuff, especially you get into some of the stuff from the 60s that had 14 inch factory wheels, 15 inch factory wheels. You know, there's sometimes aftermarket doesn't offer everything that you want for tires. So I'm back to the same thing. If it's a truly original vehicle that was restored 100% original, then go with that theme. It really comes down to what is the theme for that vehicle. If you're going customized or doing a couple of things, then you know what? Much like it was done back in the day, you put a couple of things on your vehicle and away you go. They can normally be returned to factory condition. On the other side of the coin, if you're going modified like Berto did on Jenny, by all means, go all out and make it 
a true all-out custom done, and that has its own look to it. Would I like to see a original 800-mile, you know, 1971, you know, Roadrunner with some aftermarket wheel when everything is original as it was 700 miles? Well, unless it was wearing that set of mags from, you know, the day it was delivered, in which case then I'm okay with it because it's still so air correct and that's part of the history of that vehicle, then I would probably say, no, leave the factory wheels on it. But if you're customizing, you're doing a lot of driving and you can't get the proper tires and there's a safety aspect because now instead of the factory bias ply, you're going to put a different tire on there because you actually log 10,000 miles on your vehicle and you're going to do a run from, you know, LA all the way to New York cross country trip down route 66. Totally, again, different scenarios. It really comes down to what is your flavor that you're trying to do for the vehicle. And as Berto said, it's your vehicle at the end of the day, whatever makes you happy. We're all on this planet for X amount of years, and one day we're going to die. And someone else is going to end up with that vehicle we love. They're going to put their own twist on it because I'm a huge believer we are caretakers of the vehicle we currently own. Yeah, okay, I may own said vehicle, but I'm a, the current caretaker. And if I look after it correctly, someone, when I'm gone, will have the opportunity to own that, and they're going to do their own thing. I might be rolling in my grave going, oh, my God, I can't believe they did this to my vehicle. <laughs> haunt them and the vehicle's not going to start because I'll know where I did that repair years ago and I know exactly where to play with it but at the end of the day we all got to do what we need to do on our own vehicles to make it what we want we all have that vision in our head of what that ultimate's going to be and isn't that the whole thing of life we're just we got to do what makes us happy because there's so much you know struggle in life and stress etc these cars are supposed to be our get away from all that it's supposed to be our you know reset our grounding rods why not do something if you hate those wheels freaking change the wheels who cares what everyone else says do what you Absolutely. need for you so I've, I've got a good compromise to that being being the shop owner here the vehicle above my head 56 t-bird that's the prime example i've um recommended to a lot of people change it but if you're worried about resale value or it's, you know, purity, do the work so you can reverse it. So wheels and tires, that's an easy one. They bolt on, they bolt off. The the car behind me is going full uh, modern fuel injection. So we're changing, you know, tank, tank intake, ignition system on this one, you know, obviously fuel injection. But there's nothing that can't be undone. So same thing with the stereo, you know, we're going to go in there with something. So the that, that's a third generational car. It's being handed down to a grandson that is about my age. Um, and I think that's awesome. I think it's great that they're going to keep it in the family, but they were also worried about, well, it's been sold original. It wears its original paint. We have the original, you know, uh, caps for it. everything else. That's, that's fine. You can't keep them all original, you know, 100%. Interior has been redone in that. Okay. Boom there. That, that hurts it if you're, if you're the purest. <laughs> So don't be worried about throwing a different set of wheels or tires on there. You know, get rid of the bias supply so you can go down the road. Get rid of you know the old two barrels so you can enjoy the damn car. I'm I'm huge, and you guys know this from watching me take Jenny across the country. I'm huge on driving your freaking car. You build it. I mean, there's cars that you just don't drive. I get that. But if you're gonna put your time and money to it, drive it. Let your kids know what a what a hot rod looks like. Let let them feel. The road in an old metal dash that might that might kill you if you slam into it. <laughs> I mean, those are the things that make memories. That's that's what I'm all about. My kiddos, uh, our newest vehicle is a '96 model. Like I don't have brand new vehicles. I'd rather put my money into an old one and make it more modern. So that's that's what I'm into. Anyway, there's there's a compromise if you want one. You can cut them. 
to no return. But if you're somewhere in the middle, there's there's a solution. Ask your local builder if they're knowledgeable enough. Maybe they got solutions for you, like I try to um, supply my customers with. So I, I think there's a there's a um, middle ground. And I do think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you look at my 1990, and I've had that truck all over the forums and all for years. That truck started as a 727 automatic, and I currently have a 24 speed uh, transmission in there. Currently, out of the need of when I start hauling heavy stuff, I, I need that transmission. And I've hacked a lot of stuff up on that truck over the years, but I have every factory part that I pulled off that truck. And yeah, okay, maybe the transmission tunnel has a hole in it where it didn't used to be. At the end of the day, I can weld a piece of sheet metal in there, do the proper body work, and it would be original again if I ever had the desire to put that truck 100% back to stock. I've never cut it to the point where, okay, if I were to chop, you know, six inches or eight inches out of the roof to make it a, a chopped look, okay, that's a different thing that's kind of past the point of no return. But for most of this stuff, it's serving me and my purpose, and it's a constantly evolving, changing thing. But at any day in time, if I wanted to return it back to normal, you could. And that option will be there one day when I die because all those parts that I have for over the years will go with that truck. I mean, it'll be back to being slow and not being able to go faster than 71 mile an hour. So it'll hold up the interstates <laughs> everywhere it goes. That's fine. If someone wanted that, they can. For me, that was a limitation of the truck. And quite honestly, I was at the point of getting ready to sell it, which is actually how I ended up buying my 1980 crew cab because I was planning to put that truck up for sale because I was so fed up with it after a year and a half of holding up traffic and never taking it far from home that I was getting literally going to sell it. You make the modifications and suddenly this vehicle, now I couldn't part with it. That, that vehicle was my very first vehicle I ever owned. And that's now a part of me. And those modifications made that vehicle something that I now love. And that's that changes everything. You know what's making me laugh, Robert? You'd have put that up for sale. I would have bought it. And then I would have changed. I'd have done all the changing anyway. You know what I mean? So it doesn't matter. The owner after you're long gone, he's going to love that you kept all the original parts. So... Well, I got the guys from Dodge Pod here, and you guys are the truck guys. And I have been screaming from the mountaintops for a long time that Dodge trucks are going to start surging in popularity, more popular than they already are. And they make great, reasonably priced, unless you're talking about the diesel. That's a completely first gen diesels, at least in the Pacific Northwest where I am, 30 grand. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. But, um, you know, for, as far as like the two wheel drive stuff, you know, the first gens, um, even the second gens, I think make some of the best, you know, af affordable Mopar project vehicles that you can get right now. Um, Berno, I know you're in Texas and I I'm a huge fan of Texas. And hopefully in the next few years, I'll be living in Texas because I can't stand Washington anymore. <laughs> but Come on, man. Come on. It, it, it seems to me now, I know that there's some guys in California that would disagree with this, but it seems to me like Texas has taken over the truck world. And if you oh, have yeah. a custom truck, Texas is where you want to be, whether you have it sky high or, you know, beneath the surface. You it's know like what I mean? Another um, country. Oh, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's no argument there. I don't, I don't know who wants to argue that. I mean, they'd, they'd be wrong. <laughs> that goes from the Texan. I yeah, mean, I, come on. I, we, we have trucks doing everything here. I mean, Texas is huge. Friends of mine laugh because they're like day two driving through Texas. I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> so we have every climate. You know, you go way yeah. down south, we'll burn your paint off. You go west, yeah. we'll sandblast it off. You go yeah. east, you'll you'll get the, uh, the rain and the wet. You go north, you'll get the snow. So, I mean, we got it all, but 
Yeah, Texas is huge truck country, man. LST is the show that's coming up here in a couple weeks. Yeah. Um, it's the largest custom truck show in the nation, and it's not even that old of a show. It just it just hit the market. You know, there's a small hole. It's right in Texas. It's central, um, and I think that's what helps us all. Is you know, we have all kinds of styles for all sorts of necessities. Around here, you can go to the job site and see a brand new freaking uh, Ram lifted up 14 inches with a um, Kelderman or any level with 26 by 14s on it, <laughs> carrying the, uh, the the Bobcat and and skid loader behind it, or you'll see that same damn truck in the high school parking lot. I mean, shit, they're yeah, they're ever, it's Texas, man. I don't anybody that argues that I don't think they've been through Texas. <laughs> I think it's the min, the mini truckers. <laughs> That's oh damn those mini truckers. <laughs> damn those mini truckers. <laughs> um, but I do you want to talk about ruining you. a vehicle. That's the <laughs> I do want to talk to you about LST because it's a show that – is it always in Conroe or what? Yeah, yeah, it's always in Conroe. Like I said, it's not okay. that old of a show. I'm going to misquote it, but it's – it's. I think 2020 was its 10th year or – no, shit. I'm, I don't know. I'm way off. But it's not that it, it's not that old of a show. It's always in Conroe, which is just north of, of Houston, um, and it, it's a good turnout. We it's, it's Like I said, numbers-wise, it's huge. Weather is always a factor because of the Houston area. Again, we get a lot of rain down there. Um, we've, we've had basically floods to just perfect 80 degree weather. So my question about LST, every time I see pictures from the show, it just looks amazing. I can't wait to go. Um, I have to ask you, you know, you've been, you're a Texan, you've probably gone to very, uh, a lot of LSTs, I imagine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you have your finger on the pulse. Do you see Dodge trucks more and more often? Are they starting to come up? Cause it, it seems like. You know, obviously the C10 community is is gigantic, and yeah. I'm wondering, you know, and I know that Dodges weren't producing the same numbers and stuff like that, but are you seeing a lot more Dodge trucks at these shows now? You talking classics or modern and classic everything? Uh, I, I would leave out the, I would leave out the new Rams because it's it's after my trip to yeah. SEMA this year, it's clearly evident that the new Rams are quite popular. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm thinking more like the older stuff, the swept lines, the first gens, even the tin. The answer, stuff. sadly, is still kind of the same with the more modern ones. Uh, again, mm. with the aftermarket being being hefty, um, yeah, there are a lot more in that. But if we're just talking classics, man, it's a it's a handful. I you know, really? I, yeah, it is. It is. It's sad. I mean, there's people like me. Um, and a few shops in Texas that want to build something cool and different. So there are some some swept lines and some V100s and 150s. But I mean, if I if there was a if there was a, a dozen last year at LST, that would be max. And and we wow. did we did with the podcast, we did um, some interviewing. So I was running around, and I think I probably caught six interviews and maybe missed, like I said, four or so. So I mean, that's that's ten. And that's because we scoured. Ronnie and I just went around. I was there Thursday night through Sunday afternoon. And it, no, it's not a large community. And then again, that's Texas in the middle of, you know, the, the, the beginning of the show season. That's where, if you're going to see them somewhere, I feel like that's where you would see them. And it's just not a big community. Is it growing? Yes. Five years ago, this guy. <laughs> Yeah, the yeah. only dummy putting that kind of money into a custom truck, uh, being a Dodge, this dumbass. <laughs> any any other ones? Not really. There's there's a I can't remember what the trucks are, but there's a couple regular cab, uh, you know, just swept line trucks that were um, out there with the Hemi swaps and stuff. And you do see um, a few different swept lines. Swept lines being the more classic, you know, 
all metal yeah. kind of body. You do see those. Yeah. The first gen, again, the diesels are always going to be a huge uh, factor. But even those, there's there's not. It's just a handful. Man, do you think it's? Do you think it just boils down to the lack of parts availability that's, in that's the aftermarket? That's what it is. Yeah. That's what it is. It's always going to boil down to that. Like we talked earlier, it's a supply and demand. There's, yeah. there's no, it's chicken and the egg. You know, it, are they not out because there's no parts, or are there no parts because the trucks aren't popular? Uh, you can go round and round on that, but I think it's a closing gap, just because the trucks are. And and Robert talks about this a lot. You know, are officially classics and getting older. So now they're into a different market. You know, when they were fresh, uh, they were the ugly duckling, and, and they were just utilitarian they were used for work like my dad used them and then they were beat up and put to the side and then they they, they just transferred down from being you know the, the the daily vehicle but they were always a work vehicle down to the beat up vehicle down to the ranch vehicle down to the the vehicle that's in grandpa's backyard that should start if you put a battery on it um <laughs> and now it's working its way back the trend is going back to it's i, I feel like they're a modern day hot rod the the d speaking of diesels uh, in particular so you know they they do grow in, in popularity but uh, you know, unfortunately, it's it is a supply and demand. That's why the diesel again is the most popular, in my opinion, because there is an aftermarket for that. Where, you know, body panels and all that for just the body interior, there's nobody. So, what we talked about earlier, they're expensive because they're they're Mopars. But I'm going to go one step further to what you said, Berto. It's also the fact of production numbers. I mean, yeah. when you Look at the production numbers of the Dodge pickup truck line in the 1980s and up until 93. The Dodge truck sales were the lowest, obviously, of the big three. Uh, Troy Simonson had once told me that in 1983, they dropped the club cab because they weren't having enough sales. 1985, they dropped the crew cab because they didn't have enough sales. And their plan was for the 89 model year to drop the regular cab. Now, during this time, obviously, they solidified the contract with Cummins, and that changed everything. Uh, but he had told me that Dodge owned 3% of the pickup truck market through the 80s. Now, you stop and do the math on that, 3%. No wonder they were dropping models left, right, and center, but no wonder we also don't have many trucks to restore. So if you look at that, that 97% of the trucks that are going to be at these shows, assuming the degradation and you know vehicles being parted out at the same rate across all brands, that's a lot of assumptions, but 97% of the trucks that should be at all of these shows should be Ford and Chev, which means that 3% should only be Dodge. And I would say... Those numbers hold fairly true still yeah. today. Even when I go to Carlisle or Mopar Nats, Carlisle is a great one because unlike Mopar Nats, which is a traditional car show where you can park anywhere you want. You can park your Super B beside your pickup truck, beside your brand new, you know, Charger, whatever the case. Carlisle organizes it by vehicle. And when I launched my crew cab there in uh, 2019 after the 13-year restoration on it, I... I can't remember the exact number, but it was somewhere around 12 or 14 trucks were there. If I exclude wow. them. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, you have yeah. a show that is arguably the largest Mopar show on the planet, with close to 50,000 people, close to three and a half, four thousand 4,000 cars, and you have 12, 14, 16 pickups? One of them was Walter Joy, who's been commenting on here. He was one of the ones there. I mean, there's two of the trucks accounted for right there. I mean, we're not talking a lot of trucks here, even at the diehard Mopar shows. So, yeah, you go to LST and, you know, some of these 
various shows. I just butchered that name. Uh, you know, the Lone Star Throwdown. Uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that you're only seeing a handful of these trucks because, again, the numbers just weren't there. In 1989, when they launched the diesel truck, they capped the sales at 10,000. They were Their anticipated sales for the 89 Cummins model year was 1,000 trucks. That was the entire business plan for Dodge. They oh thought they at 10,000 because Cummins and Warren Truck both said, hey, we can't do this. We didn't prepare for 10 times the sales. Well, you figure that if you're building a business plan off 1,000 vehicles to be sold, that must have been some big numbers for what Dodge's production figures were at that era. So, yeah, I mean, that continued to ramp up from there as we obviously got into the second-gen body style. You see more of those around. But I think that's why you truly don't see anything. Yeah, I, I started to get some hope. I, I went to Holly's Mo party last year. And, uh, you know, the fact that they're coming out with swap systems for the new Hemi in first gens and tin grills and stuff, that really said a lot because of a company that big, you know, they're not going to mess around with anything that's not getting popular. You know, same with QA1. From what I understand, they came out with a bunch of parts for the swept lines, which is really cool. Um, I, I wish there was a company manufacturing and I've, I've heard rumors of people wanting to put together chassis and stuff for these Dodge trucks. I haven't seen, I don't, I don't personally know of any yet, but I'm not that deep into the truck scene. Is there anybody that's doing full chassis for these things? It seems like if you have a C10, you can build that thing. You could call, <laughs> you know, 150 million different shops and they can build you a full chassis and you can have yourself a badass C10. You can't even put like a roof pan here in the Northeast. <laughs> Prepare the rotted drip rails on these trucks. <laughs> Quite honestly, we, Umberto and I have talked about this before on the pod. Is you can't get parts for these trucks. Never mind, can you get a frame and all? You can't yeah. get the everyday sheet metal parts yet to repair half of the problems on these trucks. <laughs> yeah, C tens are just Lego builds, man. They just stack the parts. They got it way too easy over there. Um, <laughs> speaking of, are there any chassis you can contact any of the major players? You know, Roadster Shop. Um, uh, who am I thinking? Scott's Hot Rods. Scott's Hot Rods, they're building a badass. I'm going to, what year is that thing? 80, mid to late 80s, uh, D150. Custom sheet oh, really? metal all over the place, custom frame. I'll, I'll tag you in it um, when we get out of here. But those those guys will, will build you whatever you want. So, but do they have it on a catalog? No. Yeah. Me personally, I've talked about this for a couple of years since I finished my truck. I knew there was a hole in the market, but good Lord, there's a huge hole in the market for, again, you know, if you build it, you know, they will come kind of uh, theory here. So I've got infancy stage plans of building a bunch of parts for these trucks. Uh, one of the conversations I was having um, with a with a listener, he's doing the, the guy I'm telling you that wants to send me some trim and some parts. He's wanting to do a full front end. And sometimes I, I'm so busy with just regular work that wanting to split off and start the manufacturing side of things has been a lot harder task than, than I ever thought it would be. Sure. Um, but that's definitely something I want to get into um, myself as a manufacturer and as a uh, custom shop is to be able to offer the simplest things. And I think Robert and I have talked about this is uh, upper control arms. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just something anybody can use, whether you're lowering it or lifting it. Um, but whatever it is, people, especially up there in the north, can use 
uh, upper control arms. I want to go to the, to, you know, to the side of lowering in performance, you know, core lovers, airbags, um, sway bars and, you know, front clips, stuff like that, that will eventually turn into full frame. But, you know, that's infancy stages. I'm still trying to get engineering and just time is the big, is the big thing, but the big people will build you a frame. Um, it just costs money. Do they have it on the catalog ready to go? No. See, I'd rather just put my money into somebody I know, like Birdo. So when you yeah. start getting that development stage, I'll send the Mr. Norm truck down there. And <laughs> Dude, I, love, a check. I love your truck. I don't know if that's where we're going, but that's where I just hit it. I love your freaking truck. <laughs> that thing is bad. It just, it's got all the right looks to it. I, I'm, I'm that type of guy. Like, I know that there's always the argument of built versus bought, but when I saw that truck, and I found out that it wasn't even a real Mr. Norm Grand Spalding shop truck. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is a tribute. I was like, this has got to be one of the coolest tribute shop trucks I've ever seen for a dealership. And uh, I fell in love with it. It wasn't for sale. I've been chasing that thing for six years and I finally got it. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't give a damn if, if I didn't build a thing. I couldn't have visualized it better myself. But the problem that I have with it now, I, I've already decided I'm, I'm going to get it. My boys over at DIY Hemi, have them help me out with that. But uh the thing handles like dog shit. <laughs> I gotta be yeah, honest yeah. with you. The ride oh, yeah. sucks on that thing. It's got cut. <laughs> it's got cut Riviera springs in the front. Most people don't know that. Um, it. It. I. I want a full chassis build on it because I want it to handle good with the Hemi. Um, so I'm just. I'm waiting in the wings. But like I said, I mean, I. Yeah, I could handle. I. I could call up the the roadster <laughs> shot. I will holler at my boy. Um, but that that brings me to another. Uh, topic and that's robert you have first gen industries let's talk about first gen industries how how hard was it to start getting this stuff remanufactured because when i had my blue truck my little 76 on air ride that was a complete hack job robert you guys both of you guys birdo and robert would have laughed at that thing if i would have shared pictures of the suspension on it was a fucking hack job dude but um i got excited when i saw that the cab lights were coming back i was like these clearance lights are available now have they always been available or did you have to pull some strings to get those back on uh, this this is a story that goes back many many years actually so when i started um well to to go into this to give you the full story i i bought the crew cab in 2004 uh with the intent of replacing the 90 with it because i hated that 727 <laughs> and when i got that truck he literally was going to get a couple things done to it the other truck was going to be gone once it had it reliable and well, that progressed to literally a, a frame off restoration, stripped, sandblasted, and away I went. At that time, 2006, 2007, a lot of this stuff was still available at Dodge. And I bought a lot of the stuff that I could. Every week I'd go with my paycheck to my dealer, and we had a list of the parts that were running out the fastest. And whatever I could afford, that week I would afford. So I got to have an opportunity that a lot of this stuff I was able to buy brand new. Well, by the time I got into 2015 and I'm trying to finish off this restoration, I'm not able to get the parts that I want. And I've got a truck that's half NOS original parts and half, what am I going to do? And this started down a road of, I was at a event in, uh, in Detroit uh, called Woodward Dream Cruise. And I bumped into some friends at uh, Mopar and I kind of said like, guys, I can't get any parts anymore. You guys have to start stocking you know, your dealers again. I, I can't get parts for my truck. And uh, they told me I was a little stupid. And they said, have you not figured out that uh, what we do for a living? I said, yeah, you, you're Dodge. Like, you, you make shit. <laughs> I buy it. And, you know, whether it's a good decision or not, I spend my money and I keep buying because you're like a crack dealer. You know, I just keep buying this shit. And they said, yeah, but you, you said it there, but you missed it. We're not a parts dealer. 
We are an automotive manufacturer and we build vehicles. It is not in our interest to be building parts for stuff. If you keep your truck on the road, that means you don't need to buy a new one. And it was kind of like that light bulb moment where the light bulb goes on. You go, oh, <laughs> I, I see. So they said, yeah, like if you're looking for new parts for your truck, it, it ain't going to happen. And then the one guy, knowing that my family business is manufacturing, said, you know, have you ever considered effectively making these parts? And I said, well, no, because I was hoping you were going to do that. Uh, that's what you guys do. And he said, you should look into a program called the Mopar Authentic Restoration Program. And we do it for all the muscle car stuff where, we, you know, there's many companies, be it licensed restorations or, you know, we can insert all the companies here that supply parts for all of our 60s stuff. And that side of the program I was very aware of because I've used many of those Mopar Authentic Restoration parts over the years. But it had never occurred to me that that could be done for the first gens. And they basically said, okay, well, if it's something that you want to pursue, you know, we can have some conversations. So a follow-up meeting did happen. And they basically explained that the Mopar Authentic Restoration Program is that parts have to be remade as original condition, original format, original. They have to be basically clones of the original part. Anything that is not 100% authentic, Mopar will not approve to be sold. And I said, well, that's fair enough, because if I'm putting something on my truck, it better be original. I hate this aftermarket situation we have right now with these trucks where you buy something that was made offshore and you put it on your truck and it doesn't really fit. Mm. And that goes for the muscle car era stuff, too. There's some stuff that isn't authentic that, you know, you just look at and you go, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to saw this out, this part, yeah. so it actually fits on my vehicle? Like, this is a brand new part. I shouldn't have to do that. So that was 2015, and it took me five years to finally solidify a contract with Mopar. And I basically was given the rights. That's given. There's a lot of realities <laughs> and costs that go around with that. I was granted, I guess is a better word, the rights to reproduce parts for first gens. And the cab lights was the very first thing. And those were actually already not available in 2004. Uh, in actual fact, it was already 02. Those lights were not available through Dodge, uh, because I tried to put a set on the 90. I ended up putting second-gen clearance lights on it because I couldn't get them. So they haven't been available for 18 years now. As you know, plastic parts sitting on the roof of these vehicles, out in the weather, California sun, you know, you're not so bad up in the Northwest there. I'm not so bad up in the Northeast, but people in Berto's country, man, that big <laughs> stuff. And this, that was the first thing I wanted to do because it was something that I had already done so much extensive research Back to my previous comment of I have been buying a lot of stuff from Mopar. I have a bunch of NOS parts that I never installed on the crew cab in the end because I could see where this license was going with Mopar and I wanted original in the boxes parts that I could reproduce off of. And one of those parts happened to be cab lights. I had managed to track down some original ones from a couple years back and I had held on to them. And sure enough, this deal came to be. That was the first thing that I tooled and I have a lot of parts in the works and they will all be Mopar authentic parts. They will be identical to the original parts that were sold through the Mopar parts department. My biggest challenge has been, I hate to see these trucks parted out and destroyed, but when you can't get parts for these vehicles, what are you supposed to do? You have to buy a parts truck and you start stripping them down. We're not like the C10 world or the Ford world where a lot of this stuff can come out of a catalog. And I want to change that. This is not from a back to the business numbers as an ROI business. It's probably not the smartest because again, 3% of the truck market. Yeah. If you were, if you're going to spend the money to tool something, it doesn't matter whether you tool it for a Chevy or you tool it for, you know, a Dodge, 
you could have a tooling mold that's going to cost you fifty, sixty thousand dollars. It doesn't matter which one you make it for, but your return on your investment for the Dodge guys, you're going to sell one for every 10 of them that you would sell to the Chev world. But for me, it's not about that. This is a passion of mine. These trucks took me very deep over the years and I'm doing this purely out of a, I want these parts to be available and being, I have a manufacturing facility at my fingertips. I can do this in a way that's fairly cost effective compared to many other people. So that's where this is going. There's a lot of stuff that's going to be launched this year. My biggest challenge has been COVID uh, that has created so many challenges through the supply chain. So many things I had, my license actually was supposed to be signed the week that COVID became a household word. I had been waiting for five years and I was already told by my contact Mopar is being done this week. Uh, you should have it by Wednesday at Monday morning, this whole thing of ooh COVID and there's, there's some virus going to try to kill us all happen. And that even delayed out it, about six months to even get that contract signed. So it's been huge hurdles, but we're getting there. It's, it's coming along. So that's, that is the whole theory behind what first gen industries is. It's to offer parts that are no longer available through Mopar, but based off of all the factory drawings. Yeah, that's awesome. It's great that you're doing it. I know that there's guys like me with the tin grill. That's like, damn it. <laughs> Come on, throw us a bone. <laughs> but again, that's, that's why the Mopar world is, um, is a better community. Robert knows that's not going to make him the richest man in the world, yeah. as opposed to tooling for another very popular vehicle, but he's doing it anyways to keep the trucks, um, on the road and authentic and hats off to Robert for, for going that route. I'm trying. Someone's got to do Absolutely. it. This, you know, it, it really bothers me when I see the few parts that are available are all from offshore. So I said, you know what? Enough's enough. We need to do it here. And all my stuff's being done on North American soil, North American tooling done here, parts manufactured here. Yeah. It makes the stuff more costly, but I also can guarantee the quality of it because it's done within our own facility. Absolutely. I think <laughs> I am just grateful that somebody with the two the facility to you know make that kind of stuff happen just happens to be a Dodge truck enthusiast. Like we lucked we lucked out. You know what I mean? Uh, so yeah, that's awesome. Um, with the shortage of parts, do you? Because like some you know, I said that I've been a huge voice for you know these trucks make great project vehicles. Uh, how do you feel about that? I mean, do you feel like they make good projects as far as Mopar's getting into the Mopar game, you know, at a reasonable price? Yeah, so I got two thoughts on this. Going on back to automotive history, the 30-year rule, and this is what Berto referred to as him and I haven't had this discussion before. In general rule of thumb, the 30-year rule always holds true in automotive. And the 30-year rule is when a vehicle becomes 30 years old, it effectively transitions from a used vehicle to considered a classic. Mm. So back in the 1960s, what were you restoring? Mm. Vehicles from the 30s. Yeah. You know, I remember talking to a, a gentleman who was in his 70s. He had a fully restored 66 Sport Fury at Mopar Nats. And he was telling me that he originally had bought that car to tow his uh, Model T to car shows. Wow. And that, that kind of struck me as odd. And this was many years ago. And the more I learned on it and the more I paid attention, the, the rule holds true. What were we doing in the 90s? Restoring, starting to restore the stuff from the 60s. And we're now in 2022. What's 30 years ago for us now? It's all of these vehicles of the 80s. And let's yeah. say very few of us are going to be going out and restoring a 
you know, Daytona with a four cylinder 1980s, you know, it, it's a very different thing. But one of the things that is very strong and very simple to work on is the trucks of the 80s, because effectively yeah. up until 93, when they went to change over to the second gen body style, effectively the 72 to 93 trucks are all the same. You are working on 1960s technology. Yeah, maybe they threw a diesel in as the last moment, but all that stuff is 60s technology. If you can work on a 1966 Barracuda, you can work on a 1993 Dodge Ram because there's very little that's actually different. All the technology is the same. All the fabricating stuff is the same. So it's very easy to work on. A small block a small block, whether it's from you know 1972 or 1989, the trucks are easy. These principles are all there. The parts for that stuff is available they are very good things to work on. They're simple to work on. You don't have to be a computer expert to be able to plug in your laptop to the OBD port to figure out how to get your engine to run and tune it. <laughs> you don't need any of that stuff. They're they're truly very good vehicles to restore and to work on. Parts are still fairly available, uh, provided you don't need original NOS to be doing a full NOS restoration on your truck. Um, there's a lot of guys that still have parts for these because we're just starting down this 30-year restoring market. Five years from now, eight years from now, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot harder to find parts. But right now, used parts are still fairly plentiful, whether it's on Facebook, Craigslist, uh, Kijiji for you Canadians. Uh, <laughs> that, that type of thing is the, the parts are still there. But yeah, I, I think that's a great way for people to start. If they want to start into this, they're not hugely expensive. You can still get a decent condition, uh, restorable first-gen RAM from you know, be it diesel or non-diesel for anywhere from a thousand bucks to 4,000 bucks for a diesel, you can still find that stuff. Yeah. It's going to need some work. If you want, you know, second grade, uh, you know, restoration candidates that, you know, you don't have to replace the entire truck. You can still get them for 6,000 bucks, 7,000 bucks, put some time and effort into it without having to do a full, full restoration. And by $15,000, you've got a really, really decent truck. Yeah. It's, it's funny because, with the Mopar heads and the guys that, especially in the diesel community, um, that know what these trucks are worth and stuff, you see the prices are crazy. But then if if you're on the ball and you catch that brand new ad that posted and it's like, Hey, selling my grandpa's truck, it's a Dodge, blah, blah, blah. You can, there's still deals out there to be had, but you got to be first in line. You got to be ready. You got to have that cash in hand. I've seen some deals where the truck, posts and then it's gone as quick as it posts because there's people that are just waiting in those wings like finally a, a 12 valve boom 93 club cab four wheel drive oh boom original 93,000 miles boom <laughs> they, they grab them quick have to be truly serious you're 100% right if you know that you are shopping for a vehicle and you've done your homework you know what you're looking for and that vehicle pops up don't wait till tomorrow hop on the call now I, there was a truck I went to look at about a year ago, and it was the same thing. It was all original, low mileage, and it was sold within 41 minutes of being listed. And I know this because I called at the 35-minute mark, and the guy told me that, oh, he's got a pending deal. And he called me back three minutes later. He's like, yep, the guy took it. It's it's done. And I look at that, and I go, man, there's there's the true reality of the market. Now, in fairness to that, the truck was being sold under value. And that's part of the reason why it did go quick. And the gentleman who bought it in turn went to flip the truck and it was for sale three weeks later. But that's a whole different thing. That's that's a different challenge that's happening in the market right now is we've got some of that flipping starting. And I've seen that a lot where that grandpa truck does come up. It's being sold for less than market value. 
they buy it and they they advertise in a way that they can get another maybe five thousand, eight thousand dollars on top of it. But that is pushing up the pricing on this as well a little bit. Um, yeah. Uh, do you have anything? I'm, I'm trying to see what we can what we can get out of you as far as the first gen industries goes. Um, that's your business. Do you have anything in the pipeline that we can get people excited about, or are you kind of just going with what you got now? Because you do have a decent amount of uh, products available on first gen industries. Yeah, I've got, I'm trying to get a bunch of stuff done. And unfortunately, when you retool something, it takes a lot of time and money. Yeah. Uh, the cab lights were the first thing and I've launched, started launching some of the aftermarket stuff um, that is of higher quality. I've got all the original restoration decals now available. That took several months to get all that done. Now I'm working on, I'll, I'll give a very small hint here. Um, we all have a challenge in these trucks, which is our headliners tend to fall down because there's a certain thing that holds them up that yeah. uh, no one seems to be able to get a hold of and they're always broken. Uh, that's what's going in the works. And the biggest challenge is these parts are very, very large. And the tooling for this is monumental huge. Um, to give you an idea, a, a trim piece that would go across the top of your windshield that holds your headliner up, mm -hmm. although that's a very small light part the tooling for that is actually four and a half thousand pounds worth of steel that has to go into a plastic injection machine to make that part so there wow. these are huge huge molds um that take a lot of time and that's what's unfortunately right now we, there's been a shortage for those of you who know your supply chain there's been a huge huge supply chain issue with steel um, steel prices are through the roof, and a lot of times you have to wait. Uh, one of my tooling uh, blocks of material that I needed, I had to wait uh, 19 weeks to even get the material in, just because they just don't have any available right now. So this is some of the stuff that's being worked on, and I've got a whole bunch of other things aside from that that are in the pipeline. But a lot of trim stuff is coming, a lot of exterior stuff for the vehicles coming, stuff that the sun has killed that we don't have available right now. All that stuff is going to be coming up within really in the next 12 to 18 months. There's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that currently isn't available that will be very quickly. Awesome, man. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I think about a part not available and uh, I get that, that dreamer mentality, we're like, oh man, somebody's got to make it, you know, and you, you just don't know what it takes and the amount of tooling and how much it costs to get that together like i said it's just a blessing that somebody that has a manufacturing facility is so into the trucks and is an actual enthusiast to make it happen so um much like Berto said who we lost and i'm trying to get him back on but the link is not working um i did post a link in the chat to come on screen so if anybody has a question for robert um hopefully we can get Berto back on um but uh, feel free to join up. I'll, I'll bring you on screen and you can ask uh, any questions you want. But Robert, I, I do know that you're a Mopar guy and you have more than just the first gen trucks. So uh, entertain the folks and tell us how big your collection of Mopars is. I have one or two. <laughs> <laughs> I started into this uh, many years ago. Uh, many people uh, get into the stuff later in life. I was heavily involved in this stuff already. I was attending things like Mopar Nationals and all when I was just a kid. And I took a, a deep love into this stuff. So some of the cars that I have had or currently still have, I, I love bigger vehicles. Uh, hence my love of first-gen Rams. Yeah. I've done a lot of C-bodies over the years. I had a 68, actually I had two 68 Newports. 
uh, big block cars. I had a 70 uh, New Yorker. Uh, 440 727 car I got rid of that one uh, and my uh, Newport and both of those help fund a car that I have and will have for a long time it's a 69 300 four-door hardtop with a oh, 427 cool. uh, they're very rare cars uh, there's no b-pillar in the car so you roll both of your front and rear windows down as one big open yeah. hardtop look that's rad uh, that's a 440 car I had to drive halfway across the country for. On uh, one of those, as we just discussed, that car came up. I had been looking for eight years to find a clean one, and I found one that was original body, never restored, original top, original interior, original drive line, and that popped up. It was a Thursday afternoon. I was on the phone with the guy. Yes, I want it. And then I had to find, uh, I give a call to dad and kind of went, all right, uh, you have any, any chance you want to do a 50 hour road trip before Monday morning? Cause I've got meetings at work. I have to be at. So we left Friday morning and, uh, man, that was a lot of driving, but it was worth it. We got that car home and absolutely love it. Um, you know, we discussed earlier in this call, those memorable moments when you're younger that creates a lasting impression. And I'm sure pretty much everyone listening here can think back to that moment of you were standing somewhere and you saw that car that left, you know, that mark on your heart. For me, I had two vehicles that left a huge mark on me. Um, one was in 1993. I was standing at the uh, Mopar Nats in Indianapolis. At that point in time, it was still held at Indy Raceway. And I was standing on the infield. And I remember standing there and looking at this C. And that, by C, I probably mean 2530 brand new Dodge Vipers that were lined <laughs> up on the infield. And I remember standing there. And I was a kid at the time. And looking at all these cars and going, my God. This is one of the most beautiful car bodies I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, we all picture that original 92 Viper and what it looked like. And I was that kid that absolutely fell in love with that. The other car that I uh, had a memory with even earlier than that, I was about five years old, is I took a love to a 1970 Plymouth Superbird. And oh, those are two cars that oh. did a lot of damage on me. So <laughs> lo and behold, I decide at the ripe old age of 12 years old that I would like a Dodge Viper. And my parents told me, well, if you want a Dodge Viper, you better start saving because it ain't us buying it for you. <laughs> I unfortunately, wasn't born into that type of family where that was going to be a something I received. We didn't have those types of funds. So my parents did, however, open a bank account for me. And birthday money, Christmas money, you know, everyone always said, what do you want for Christmas? I want money. I want to buy a Viper. And, you know, everyone got, you know, they went from the Walkman for your cassettes to the Discman where you could listen to your CD players. I didn't care about any of that. I didn't need the newest shoes. I didn't need any of that stuff. I wanted a damn Viper. And all the money that I could on summer jobs, I started working my first summer job at 13, uh, where I worked my full summer because that gave me funds that I could put toward, you know, my goal. And a uh, week before my 22nd birthday, um, which, you know, opportunity was knocking. I had enough funds saved that I started looking at used Vipers. Uh, the prices started to come down by then. And I found myself a used Viper uh, in Michigan, actually. And, well, I became a Viper owner. And that, I have to say, for all the, for the decade of effort that it took to save for that and all the people who mocked me over the years, that's a car I still have with me to this day, and I will probably have till the day I die. 
Um, I was very fortunate. I ended up with an O2 ACR. So it's a club track edition. So it's fully track prepped and certified for any track in North America. Uh, came with a five point race belts on it already. Uh, 122 point adjustable suspension. Uh, it's full dynamic dampers and all. It is way more than a 22 year old needed, but it was something that I was very fortunate and had worked hard for. And, you know, it's that old saying of when you work for something, you appreciate it differently. And I did. I mean, that first year, I never full throttled the car because I know how volatile Vipers can be. And I didn't want to wrap it around a pole. And I had worked literally every cent I had made up until that year had gone into that car. And the irony of the whole thing is when the, the time came to buy that car, I was there was two of them. There was a regular GTS and an ACR. And I was a couple thousand short for the GTS. And my parents came forth and they said, you know what? That car is the one you need. We'll lend you the difference. You have to grab it when that car comes up but you will pay us back. And I did. And well, that's the story behind that car. And uh, aside from that, uh, I've got uh, three first gens. I've got my 19, actually, I've got a couple more than three first gens, if I'm truly honest here. Roadworthy, drivable today. I have three <laughs> first gens. Uh, I've had to thin my collection out. I Over the course of COVID, when you weren't supposed to be doing too much, I accidentally dragged 20 or 30 trucks home. So I had a couple too many. So I've had to thin some of that out. But I've got my 1980 crew cab. That's a W350. Uh, it's now got a 97 compound turbo Cummins in it. Uh, that thing's set for running around 65 to 70 PSI boost. So it wow. got some decent power out of that. Uh, full <laughs> air ride suspension. Uh, same thing, 24-speed transmission. I've got a whole bunch of gauges and all in there so I can actually tow and use the truck. I've got my 1990, uh, which we already discussed that one. I've got a 93 D350 that is a factory 518 automatic truck. This weekend, I'm currently in the process of converting that to stick and doing another couple of modifications to it so it can keep up with modern day traffic without holding it up. And I've got a couple of uh, other trucks. I've got a 1985 crew cab now, which ironically is identical paint to my 1980. The two trucks, literally people think that that is the before and after shot of the truck. Uh, <laughs> But that's another truck that found me, and that's going to be going under the knife here soon. And I've got uh, a 1990 Pilot truck uh, that is a factory W250 uh, five-speed stick, and that truck's also going to be going under restoration soon. Wow. Uh, my hat's off to you, dude. All the time when I deal with all these project cars and I show pictures and show videos and stuff. I always hear I'm the guy who said, I hope that some young kid has saved his money and is looking for a 69 Dodge charger. That's a basket case that he can learn how to fabricate and all that fun stuff on. And every, I recently I've been dealing with this a lot. I get a lot of the people saying, Oh, no kid is ever going to blah, blah, blah. No kid could ever afford that. And then I hear a story like yours where at 12 years old. So 22 is when you got the Viper. Correct. correct. So between 12, when you decided I'm getting one of those cars, you're dead set on getting one of those cars, 10 years, you worked your ass off and then you managed to pull it off and you got your dream car. That is the exact thing that I say when I tell these people, there's a kid out there that I know that people believe that like the young, the young kids, like none of them have any drive, but there's kids out there that there will hustle and you're a perfect example of that. And you know, what? one of the things I love doing Again, when, you, when you're given a car like that, it's a very different mentality in many cases, not all. Mm -hmm. But I ended up with a car that I worked hard for, and I know what the desire and the thirst was 
to get that car. And I can't tell you how many people have sat in that car at various shows because I can see the same thirst and twinkle in their eye yeah. that I recognize in my own. And their dream is to one day own a Viper. And there's actually been a couple of people who now own Vipers. I've had that car for 15 years. And I've had people who literally have sat in that car and then a couple of years later, they roll into the car show with a Viper of their own. And they go, man, I always had that dream. And then I sat in yours and I knew it just had to happen. And I heard your story of how you did it. And I, I followed suit. That to me is the reward where I could literally inspire someone else to take it to that next step because we the reality of life is it's so easy to sit back and watch on instagram facebook uh tiktok whatever it is and we watch these people and we go oh my god they have this oh man <laughs> they're so lucky to have it they don't see the backstory of how they got to there we just instantly assume somehow they were plunked into today and they ended up with that beautiful car and those lucky bastards they ended up <laughs> they didn't have to work for it but the reality is there's always more to that story you don't see the sacrifices that that person made, the hours that they worked. You know, I've done 80, 100 hour weeks to make my dreams happen. People don't always see that side of it. They just see the result of what I have. That is the side that, you know, if you can inspire people that, yes, you actually can go from here, that dream, to making it a reality mm. by believing in that dream. I always tell people, believe in that dream, make it happen because it can happen. I proved something to myself when I was young that if you truly believe in that dream, you can make that happen. And that is truly exactly where it's gone now. And I encourage everyone listening to this. If there's a vehicle that you truly want, make it happen. Believe in it. Don't, don't let any of the naysayers steer you another direction. Believe in that dream. Just tune everybody out. Make it happen. No, that's so amazing. Berto, welcome back, buddy. I'm glad we got you back. Um, I want to I want to talk I want to talk to you in just a minute about how you got started with your shop and stuff. But I, I I'm just so I'm so excited to hear Robert's story about wanting the Viper and getting the Viper. That's man, that's so refreshing. And it's really inspiring because I'm one of those guys who for a long time was like, man, I'll never have something that cool. And it's like I, I think back and I go, man, have had I saved every penny I ever earned? I could have, you know, my dream car, which, you know, coincidentally enough, is a, a wing car. I want a wing car. You'll notice I didn't say I own the wing car yet. I'm still <laughs> working on that part of the dream. We haven't really got there yet. That's still that's still in my 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 next requirement has to be that. So I'm I'm going back to eating tuna sandwiches again. <laughs> you got the Viper. I mean, that's a great place to start. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> and from what Walter says, you're just casually leaving out the second Viper you have. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> This is where I don't encourage people to follow in my footsteps. Walter, <laughs> Walter, you had to bring that up. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll go there. Um, I was doing the responsible thing and I uh, was going to be purchasing my own house and all and trying to be mature. And I had an opportunity. Um, again, I was at another car show. This is why you can't go to car shows and talk to too many people at Mopar. <laughs> and my dream had always been as much as I loved having my Viper, and being able to achieve it, it was used. And there's something to be said when you buy something firsthand that it's yours and you can factory order it as you want. I've never owned a brand new vehicle in my life. I've always bought used stuff. And I took uh, this advice I got at, at the car show and I had been talking to the gentleman who actually turned out to be the head of the Viper program. And he had told me that, you know, we're, we're gonna be canceling the Viper at the end of 2017 and that's it, we're done. 
where there is no coming back this time. And I said, oh, man, I'd always hoped that I would have the opportunity to factory order one for myself. And he said, well, if you ever wanted that opportunity, you better be doing it in the not too distant future because this is literally going to be done. And I said, all right, well, I'll go talk to my dealer, see what pricing is and all. And he said, I wouldn't wait too long because we have a dealer that's placing an order for basically the remainder of our production year. And I went, oh, shit, it's it's like that. Great. So on Friday, you know, you're going to a car show, enjoying life. And then, you know, Saturday morning, you realize your biggest dream is about to disappear. Uh, went to my dealer on Tuesday morning when I was back and he told me, man, the system's locked out. Like they're not taking any more orders. And lo and behold, it proceeded to a very long chain of events. I called Chrysler every week for literally the next probably 25 weeks. Um all the way until basically March. And I had badly, badly wanted this car, um, but it was not in the cards. And through a series of strange coincidences and events, I've always said my Mopars have found me. I don't find them. Uh, I managed to somehow get an allotment for one more car. And I had written a letter to Chrysler Corporate explaining that, you know, this has been a dream of mine since I was, you know, just a kid. I've never had the opportunity. I was able to achieve a used one, but I never had that opportunity to buy a new one. And I was willing to pay for it and take my house town payment and throw that toward this car. But they were preventing me effectively from having that opportunity because they just wouldn't tell me whether there was an opportunity or, or even a dealer that had an allotment that I could order through them. They, and I, I did eventually get that opportunity. And they said, they called me actually personally on my cell phone and said, are you actually this serious? And like, is the story you just told us true? And I said, 100%. And they said, we can make it happen. And wow. I through a further strange series of events, my car ended up being the last public car off the assembly line. So find mine on the assembly line was the Chrysler historical museum car, which is the red one that you see in the various photos of the last Viper. And if depending on which photo you see, you'll see a yellow car in front of that on the assembly line. That is the car that became mine. And wow. Hey Robert. Yeah. What's it like to Lamopar how to run their shit? You just you just make a phone call. <laughs> just make a phone call. You're like, hey, I'm about to get a lot of letters. I'm taking They're the about last to get a lot of letters. Viper. That one's mine, Dibs. Oh, hey, by the way, I'm making parts. Let's uh, let's do that too. What I know, Robert? Yeah, I gotta I gotta go to the school of Robert. Just tell the manufacturers <laughs> how to do their shit. Just no. What I can say on that is, <laughs> passion goes a long way. Yeah. And that's with anything in life. If you truly have a passion for something, for, for everyone, there's different levels of interest. You have an interest of, yeah, okay, you like it, and you know a couple things about it, and you, know, you go into, you know, you're obsessed with it, and it becomes full-life passion. And then there's another level above, above there where you're mentally retarded, and they want to throw you into <laughs> that's where I live. And it, it's a very weird place, and I don't encourage people to do the choices that I've made because it's always – about the vehicle you know one of the engineers at chrysler who is now retired told me many years ago and it's words i live by when i was discussing you know doing a house or a viper and all that he told me general rule of thumb in life when there's a choice between something and a car always choose the car (laughs) and there's truth to that for us car guys we're willing to skimp on our daily livelihood we'll rent 
you know, places that aren't that nice. We'll, we'll live in different things. Okay. Yeah. Your, our wives aren't necessarily happy about that, but there's a reason why I'm single on that end of the world <laughs> because I would have been tossed out years ago. Uh, <laughs> But we're willing to sacrifice stuff for our vehicles. I've always believed that your steed eats before you do. And there's been many times where I've bought stuff for my truck that probably shouldn't have happened, but I was willing to skimp on the other side. Hey, I can wear ripped pants for another week. That doesn't bother me, you know, <laughs> knock yourself out. And that Berto is kind of where this has gone. It's a lot of people know me. I've got a face only a mother can love. And it, it's people tend to remember it. And I'm just... It's a passion of mine, and I, I've been very fortunate that this stuff has worked out. Man, that's well played. <laughs> so there you go, Walker. Now you got the other half of the story there. <laughs> I just can't imagine corporate Stellantis right now is going to get all sorts of letters like, I've always dreamed about having... <laughs> uh, the first letter is going to be from me. <laughs> yeah. Um Berto, I know that so many people, I mean, myself included, I, when I was younger, um, you know, in my teenage years, uh, I had always dreamed about opening a custom shop. Clearly that didn't happen. Um, tell us how you got involved in building custom vehicles and what led to your business, which is in your livelihood is building custom cars. That's and trucks. That's awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah. 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 Um, like I said, it's it'll be 19 years in uh, 2022 um, in business, and I'm not a huge large business. Uh, I have a full time guy. Um, I have part time guys. It goes back and forth. Honestly, I'm too picky to have like the big shop with just dozens of people working here. I, I learned that long time ago that I just I work better by myself. <laughs> um, and in saying that, when I got into business, this was 2003. I had a, a backstory on me. You know, graduated here small town in Texas, went to university here, Texas Tech University. Um, with a different career path, I was going on to higher learning to do to do other things. I was slated for law school. Um, oh, it's wow. what I was going to do. I didn't go that route. I ended up interning with uh, our local district attorney's office for almost two years. That opened up my eyes. I always knew I was going to tinker and play with cars. Uh, that comes from my dad. So where it, does it stem from? Uh, definitely my dad. He was the uh, hot rod guy. He was the drag racer. He was the Mopar 60s uh, classic car kind of guy that was instilled in myself and my brother. So that's where it came from. Even in college, the way I would pass time, it would be to go, go to the local junkyard and pick parts. Um, <laughs> and then just come home and play with them. I'm sure I, I missed out. My apologies for uh, for cutting out here just a while ago. But um, I'm sure Robert talked about that too. Um, you know, just doing things on a budget. You know, I didn't have the money to go search through the catalogs and I didn't have a brand new, uh, you know, late nineties truck to go uh, play with and do the sport truck thing back in, in, in that trend in that era. So I would go to this local salvage yard with my old truck and pick parts. And back when clear, uh, clear lenses and white face gauges were the thing, <laughs> I went to the salvage yard and I, I was smarter than that because I knew my dad would whoop my ass if I took my truck apart and ruined it. So I would go to the salvage yard on a cheap, you know, uh, budget and pick parts. I'd, I'd get springs out of a truck and cut them and put them in my truck. And when I fucked it up, I was like, I better fix this before dad gets home. <laughs> and there's the other side of it. My dad and mom really never wanted me wrenching for a living. They wanted me to go to school, get my education, um, and be in an office. Uh, fast forward, you know, I'm, I'm graduating, I'm interning, 
And that was the best thing that happened to me. I, I made some lifelong friends there, but I also got to see every bit of what was going to be my future. And I did not like it. I was seeing people I knew run through the system. I was seeing how the system isn't perfect. I was seeing how the system is hard. I was one of the stories that really led me to um, start darting towards um, my hobby was a local district attorney that I kind of became friends with had just turned like 40, 41. I'm searching for a file. I go into his office and he's got this big old smile ear to ear. It's probably January, just after the holidays. He'd bought a motorcycle a couple months before and was riding it. And here in my area, we've got mild weather really up until January. Then we get cold for a couple months and it starts getting warm again. So he's riding his motorcycle every day to work. And I'm thinking, man, this guy's just excited to have his bike. I'd be doing this same thing well now it's stupid cold and like there's snow on the ground he's got his damn two wheeled you know machine up there and the leathers and the suit and the helmet and i'm in his office looking for a file and i tell him what's up with the motorcycle and he's he's sitting there writing a check with a smile on us uh, with a smile on his face and i'm wondering why is this guy so happy it's like 30 degrees outside and he's writing a check i don't i have to ask and he said i'm writing out my last loan payment um for school and i so i do the math in my head and I'll walk away with that story. Then, you know, a few more stories come in. A lot of the guys um, and girls there had side gigs. Uh, one guy, you know, uh, uh, one female was like a health instructor of some sort. She, you know, she taught some sort of class at a workout facility. Another guy uh, had landscaping business with uh, with his brother. So a lot, I saw a lot of people making ends meet and just doing other things other than practicing law. So I started digging more and more. Long story short, I saw a lot. My eyes were opened. I started mechanicking on the attorney's cars after hours and on lunch break to earn money. I was a broke college student. I mean, I was living at home. I had, I had no money. I was saving up everything I could. And I thought I was going to law school and, you know, applying for grants, just, you know, wishing wells, whatever, whatever I could do. And I saw these broke mofos happy about riding a <laughs> Honda Shadow and writing a checkout for his last payment. And the dude's 40. I'll, I'll let you know right now. I'm 41. He was where I, you know, where I am today. And he was happy about working that nine to five. Now I had the idea that I would work for the good guys, which means you work for the state, which means you don't get paid a lot, putting bad yeah. guys in jail, the criminals, you know? So turns out it probably just wasn't for me. So I started relying on uh, my hobbies. Like I said, I started doing mechanic work on attorney's vehicles. So I got into the parking lots and I looked over at their parking lot. Then I looked over at our parking lot were secretaries and interns and all that parked. Our cars were nicer than theirs. Now we're all car guys. We see that stuff, you know? And I, I noticed all their vehicles were, were old. Um, out of necessity, they just did what they had to. And I'm sure eventually you get to a place where you earn more money and all that. But I, <laughs> I'm a car guy. I'm like, I can't drive a minivan. I can't drive that old busted truck. I got to have something nice, something kind of hot rod. <clears throat> excuse me so all this stuff started clicking i started relying back on my hobby my dad did construction uh, he had a shop uh the shop i'm in right now and i said i need to earn money i don't know what i'm gonna do but i'm not doing that so i did everything i took my lsats i did everything except um an acceptance so i stopped short of that and said i, I can't do that i'm not going to spend you know six figures and you know three more years of my life on something i think i want to do i was always yeah i'm structured and planned i had everything figured out and for the first time in my life i didn't know what to do relied on my hobby 18 years later i'm still doing it um 
to kind of answer one of the questions you had. I did it when I was young. It's a lot easier to do that when you're not married, when you don't have kids, when if yeah. you fall, you might have a safety net. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, now, if I were to have to do it now, and, and I said it earlier, I'm wanting to get into manufacturing. That's like opening a whole other business, and that's that's mm. a leap because I'm eventually going to have to either hire all the right people to keep this business afloat while I jump over to the next one, or I'm going to have to get ahead enough that I'm safe that I can essentially close down this business to start the other one. Um, so it's much easier when you're younger, you don't have those real life responsibilities where you're your only responsibility. But I've got guys sure. that I talk to because of the podcast or just because of work that tell me or ask me, man, you know, how do you do it? What did you do? And it's a simple formula. Work hard, work hard. If you don't have like the education, um, go do it for free. Go find a shop, push a broom, sit at your buddies that he knows how to weld, teach him, uh, tell him to teach you how to weld. Just, just learn wherever you can. Um, it's okay to do things cheap or for free, uh, to learn again at your buddy shop at, at the local welding shop. There's so many trade schools, there's, uh, government programs. There's all sorts of things to get into it. Don't think, because I was that person, don't think that you have to have it all figured out first. Don't be so structured that all you do is wait and wait and wait. And meanwhile, you're building that family. You're climbing the structural ladder, you know, in the corporate world or whatever world you're in. And before you know it, you look back and you're 10, 15 years into a job that you don't even like. But now you kind of have to stay there because it's security. So at whatever age, this age, if you wanted to uh, to go do it, you have to just put the work in. You said it earlier, you know, um, Robert, you know, it must be nice. I I want to kick someone in the throat when they tell me that must be nice because yeah. you don't see, you don't see my hundred hours, you know, uh, right. a week. You don't see me here at 2 a.m. finishing a customer project because I told them I would. Um, you don't see the, the thrash before a car show because um, I impose my own deadlines. Um, those aren't seen on social media. I get, I get questions like, Hey, you know, are you very busy? I don't see you posting a lot. <laughs> yes dumbass that's why you don't see a lot of posts because i'm busy it, work gets done i actually do work during the day things don't happen online only mm. um and, and there's all sorts of small stuff i do behind me i don't think you can see it very well but there's a bumper behind me that's in a v-shape that bumper is a custom bumper i built it's got 14 hours in it sent it off to the crummer came back in a v-shape it's for an 80s model truck rear bumper it's not supposed to be v'd it's supposed to be flat <laughs> that's, I mean, that's part of it. And if you get into business thinking, man, this is going to be awesome. I talked to Umberto Vulcan said, I can do it. I just got to work hard. You're also going to get your ass whooped. It's going to happen. <laughs> Uncle Sam has to know you exist. Expect that. You know what I mean? There's all sorts of stuff. There's overhead. I'm, I'm not trying to scare you away from it, but it's real life stuff. You've got to be yeah. prepared. And the number one thing that I can really push on people that my old man, instilled in me and maybe i didn't listen till it was a little late invest in yourself if you do a trade buy the right tools because those tools will make you money those tools are employees that's how you will succeed don't be 20 year old birdo that thinks it's more important to have a badass motorcycle or a <laughs> badass truck than to buy that tool you're the tool at that point so i mean ask away i can answer just about anything and the other thing I'm going to add to that, Berto, is you have to have the desire and passion to do yeah. 
what you're going to do. Don't look at it as the end goal of, hey, I can make some money at that when my shop takes off and do all that. Well, I'll tell you right now, if you're in it for that, you will fail. But yeah. you have yeah. to have passion for what you do. It's, you know, it, first gen industries, if I did not have the passion for that, I would have already stopped. I'll tell you that right now, because when you put 300 hours of your time into a mold and you do your first shots on the injection machine and those parts do not look like what they should look like and you have to start playing some of this game over again, you would walk, never return. It has to be passion and you're doing this for a different reason. The money comes along after, hopefully. Absolutely. There's a a quote from Oprah Winfrey that says, follow your passion, it will lead to your purpose. You have to follow what you love the rest will fall into place, whether you're young or old, and it'll change. I used to think I was the guy that, again, had it outlined. You know, I'm graduating from school. I have to do it with honors so I can get these uh, scholarships. Okay, now I'm in college. I have to make this sort of GPA so it's easier to get into um, into a law school, into a higher education. Okay, check that off the list. Next is this school. Then, you know, I was structured. I never thought it would be like, I think I'm going to do this. Then maybe after a few years do that. And and that's exactly what happens. Guess what? You you grow, you change. You you have um, you have a wife, you have kids, you have responsibilities, you have um, you have the government mandating stuff, trying to kill hot rods. <laughs> yeah. Back in um, when the bubble when the bubble burst in '08 and our economy uh, crashed, I was fairly young in business. I was maybe what five years into business, and I thought uh plan b and i got advice from an old timer that said hey man like stick it through you're just i know you're just now starting to show income but stick it through and he told me which is great advice and and i kind of had to sit there and think about it he said you're not going to go broke because people need an outlet you're in a hobby industry but it'll stay alive because people can't just sit there and just do the rat race forever they have to have a release um, and it's their hobbies. And I found that to be dead true. So when, when our economy went bust, and a lot of people had to get their priorities straight. Um, I didn't suffer too much. Again, I was still young in business, but it didn't close my doors. Fast forward to 2020. It's a little bit different, but kind of the same scale of people having to cut back and make hard choices. Um, my business boomed in 20 and 21. And it's because of that same reason. I had tons of people. I talked to uh, companies, you know, Ride Tech, uh, US Mags, you know, Willwood, and it's the same conversation. Hey, buddy, what's going on? You know, to your salesman, how are things going? Oh, good. How are things over there? Not too bad. Hey, man, are you busy? Yeah, we can't, you know, keep up with the supply. What about you? Absolutely. They're knocking down my door. Well, shit, people are sitting at home collecting paychecks, not going out to eat, not going on vacation, not letting whoever come over and and drink all their liquor they had tons of money left over and what they do huh my dodge is sitting over there my car sitting over there my race car might as well put hours in it i'm working from home they don't know what i'm doing i'm getting this extra money you know who says stimulus has to go into feeding your children i think i should buy him so it's all realistically good decisions for me um but you know Follow your passion. It'll lead to your purpose. And, and Robbie, you're absolutely right. You got to have a passion for it or you will not succeed. If you go into it thinking this is a niche market and I'm just going to cash in on it, you, that, that's a big mistake because you will not have the passion to see the, t- the, the tough times through and it'll show. And you And you know what? If that is what you're after, then 
sink or swim. And when you sink, it's better for the market because we won't have to deal with someone like you that does not really have the passion for it. And it'll, it'll go on to somebody else that does. And you can move on with your money making uh, schemes and go to the next one. We'll be fine. Man, you guys just dropped a bunch of truth bombs and knowledge. And I, I really appreciate it, man. You guys are super inspiring to me. Um, I was actually going to, uh, we've gone over two hours now. So I, oh, I know you guys, I know you guys, I know you guys, you know. It's Robert, man. He won't shut up. Yeah. Dang it. Chris <laughs> but, uh, has the magic mute button, though. He can just mute me out here. Oh, man. I've been muting myself. I'm like, this is amazing. I, don't, I love podcasts like this because I don't have to sit here and be the talking head. I love it because I love. Like I said, the stories is the fun part. And I just got, you know, some great stories. Some I was going to close the show asking you for your best pieces of advice, but you both just gave amazing pieces of advice. And the one thing that I will add, so you talked to Robert, successful guy, Birdo, successful guy. I'm a 36-year-old guy who realized that I messed up when I was young and I didn't take, you know, the opportunities that I had to actually build my dream then. And I could have done what Robert did and save his money and get my dream car. I might have a wing car by now had I done that. Um, I dreamed about having a shop, never materialized. But as time went on, I realized that maybe, you know, if I was truly passionate about that, I would have made it happen. You know what I mean? So as I sat here, you know, at 34 years old, a couple of years ago, you know, I had this little Facebook page. It was really nothing. I mean, what, what can you do with Facebook? But I, I wanted to be involved in the community somehow and figure out a way to get to to achieve my dreams, even though I felt like it was a little bit too late. And so I started the podcast and it's afforded me so many awesome opportunities to talk to guys like you, to go on these crazy trips. And I realized that that was my path. It just took me a little bit longer to get there because had I, there was no podcasting back when in 2003, when I graduated high school, that didn't exist. So I feel like in a way I found my calling later in life, but it's yeah, really I got inspiring. Goosebumps, man. I got goosebumps. <laughs> you're, you're telling the truth. It's never too late, dude. It's never too and, late. And sometimes things happen for a reason. You just exactly. said a podcast wasn't back then, but look yeah. at you now. And you know what, what you just said is exactly what I I, I, I was going to say. I haven't given my piece of advice and my piece of advice is it is never too late until you are breathing your last breath. It is never too late. You know what I mean? So, and I'm going to throw a comment in here, Chris, just for sure. to affirm that. And I, I truly mean this where it's coming from. What is actually the term midlife crisis? And is I don't think so. what is it? It's most people who get to their midlife and realize that they haven't done everything that they wanted to do and should have done in their younger years. That's why we as guys go out and buy the sports cars. Many end up with younger women, et cetera, because they're looking at their life from a different perspective. Yeah. Okay. You're a few years, you're not at midlife yet, but you're, you're looking at it from a different aspect. And the way that destiny tends to work is you had that burning desire and you looked at it and you went, shit, I want to add my contribution to the Mopar world. And what did you do? You ended up with a podcast, a technology that didn't exist years ago, but you had the passion burning from years ago that created it now. And you're right. You can do this at any point in time. That's what a midlife crisis is. You can do this at 50. You can do this at 60. You can do this at 80 if you so choose. As long as you're alive and you're above ground, you can absolutely follow that passion. And it will lead you down a road that will fulfill that feeling inside you. 
absolutely and to what you said earlier as far as like the people going you know oh man i wish i had that or whatever it's like man you can't <laughs> you know you just gotta apply yourself you know what i mean and everybody has a different path um and you know it's all about finding that path and it sounds like we got three guys here that found their paths and super inspiring i hope we were able to inspire some of the listeners um this was so much fun guys i had a blast um like i said super inspiring to talk to you guys and i hope everybody that has been watching and that will be listening to this um now or in the future um can take a little bit of what we were talking about and hopefully be inspired to chase your dreams you want to you want a 71 hemi cuda you can get it you just got to work hard for it you want a slammed you know crew cab you know with you know it the options are limitless. You know, the only thing that's holding you back is you essentially, you know, anything can be done. Um, and with that, uh, I think, I think this is a great episode. I'd love to do it again, guys, at your, at your convenience, we'll figure it out and we'll get you guys back on. And, um, yeah, this was, this was a lot of fun. I'm glad we were able to put this together. Talking Mopars and Dodge pod, the, the special edition swap cast, um, hopefully one of, of many in the future to come. Um, Robert, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and uh, promote whatever you got to promote? Uh, you can find me at, at W350 Crew Cab on Instagram. If you want to see my Mopar side, go at Mopar Boy on Instagram. And if you want to find First Gen Industries, you'll find that under at First Gen Industries or www.firstgenindustries.com. Uh, I don't do anything on Facebook. I never got into that. Uh, but those are the places that you'll find me. Berto, where can they find you? I'm the same way. I never got into Facebook. Uh, <laughs> IG is where I'm at. It's at Vulcan Specialties, um, at VulcanSpecialties.com. Uh, you can uh, just holler at me there. All my info's there, um, email, everything. And the other things I'm affiliated with, like I mentioned earlier, the um, the brand and the magazine stuff, it's all linked there in the same place. So just shout out. Awesome. And of course, subscribe and listen to their podcast, which is Dodge Pod. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm Chris Albrecht. For those of you that don't know that are going to be listening to this on the Dodge Pod, um, you can find me at TalkingMopars.com or all my social medias is at TalkingMopars Podcast. Thank you for listening. I had a great time. I'm sure these guys had a good time, but we got to go. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you guys next time. All right. If you're a car enthusiast like me, then you'd probably enjoy the same books that I do. I love to gain more knowledge about Mopars and cars in general, and that's where my friends at CarTech Books come in. Since 1993, CarTech has become one of the leading publishers of automotive titles for hardcore enthusiasts, with a plethora of titles available in their catalog. They have titles for everyone, whether you're into restorations, high-performance builds, or automotive history, CarTech has it all. They are a company run by enthusiasts for enthusiasts. Some of the titles I have in my own library are... Chrysler's Motown Missile, Mopar's secret engineering program at the dawn of Pro Stock, new Hemi engines 2003 to present, how to rebuild, muscle car special editions, Chrysler Torquefly A904 and A727 transmissions, how to rebuild. And look, folks, they have much more than that, and so do I. In my library, I also have books on how to vinyl wrap, modifying XJ Jeep Cherokees for back when I had one of those, and modifying the new Wranglers and Gladiators, and many more. So whether you're looking to expand your knowledge or just want something cooler to put on your coffee table, CarTech has the books for you. Visit CarTechBooks.com and find some awesome books to add to your collection today.
There you have it, my friends. Another episode of Talking Mopars is in the books. For everything you need to know about this show, you know where to go, TalkingMopars.com. And you can reach me by emailing Chris at TalkingMopars.com or by leaving me a voicemail on my voicemail box at 209-28-MOPAR. And you just might get to hear yourself on this show. So keep sharing those Mopar stories with me and anything else that is on your Mopar-addicted mind. Thank you to my friends over at CarTechBooks.com. And also, don't forget how important it is to keep your Mopar protected from the elements. If you do need protection like a car cover, don't wait. Head on over to TalkingMopars.com, click on the Affiliates tab, and go get your Mopar covered today. Before we shut this podcast episode down, if you want some Talking Mopars merchandise like t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and cool swag like that, check out the merch shop on TalkingMopars.com. And for exclusive bonus episodes and videos only for my supporters, become a Facebook supporter today and get immediate access to those benefits. There's 12 bonus podcasts and 12 bonus videos waiting for you right now with more on the way for January. That's it, my friends. Until we talk again, I am your host, Chris Albrecht, and that was Talking Mopars live. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind.